Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. You can also find us on Facebook as well. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or go right to nationalreview.com and leave some reviews. Listen there as well. We invite you to stop by our Patreon page as well. That is patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us and help the show stay ad-free as it is in its current iteration. We have entry-level for support for the show and voting privileges from time to time. Mid-level for early access and higher audio quality for our shows. And our upper-level best of friends for early access, the higher quality. Monthly exclusive content shows, remastered episodes, playlists, and more. Patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? No, oh, I don't know, Scott. It's easy to get embittered these days. No matter how many hours we spend working on these episodes, crafting them, sanding them down to perfection, to a purity, a diamond hard purity. Inevitably, all that happens when we release them is that some other podcast accuses us of plagiarizing them. It's a tricky situation, one we hope to wiggle our way out of, uh, perhaps have good explanations. Perhaps Listen, we, we took the ideas, the, yeah. the ideas for where to drop song clips sometimes, but we didn't take the clips themselves. We came up with our own clips. Okay, very fair. Find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. Our guest on today's program is a partner at Purple Strategies, a corporate reputation and advocacy agency in Alexandria, Virginia. A former George W. Bush and Eric Cantor aide, a longtime Republican strategist. Find him on Twitter at Rory Cooper, which is appropriate because it's Rory Cooper. Rory, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. I love the show. I'm so glad to finally be a part of it. I had looked back and uh, Rory and I had exchanged uh, direct messages on Twitter. Was it three years ago about this possibility? And it was just three. hanging out until we were ready. Only took you three years in line. For those wondering why their number hasn't been called yet, it's like, you know, the way the Redskins season ticket waiting list used to be back in the good old days of the Joe Gibbs era. The waiting list was like three years on just to get onto the waiting list. That's the way it is to join our show. Yeah. Uh, Rory, we turn the table, uh, turn the floor over to you. Tell us a little bit about what you do at Purple Strategies and uh, how you got there. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So Purple Strategies started off as a firm of Republican and Democratic strategists uh, working together uh, on advocacy and corporate reputation uh, type uh, engagements because there wasn't a lot of that bipartisan nature back in those days. A lot of firms have since uh, uh, paid tribute to us by doing the same. But what we try to do is help, uh, whether it's companies, brands, or uh issue uh, organizations uh, help tell their story in a better way, help connect with audiences, uh, help use insights and research-based uh, campaigns in order for them to put their best foot forward. And it's, it's really a, you know uh, using the DNA of political strategy that uh, we came into it that I've had for you know over two decades working in Republican politics and uh, and, and I've loved every minute of it. And at Purple's grown so much since I've been there and uh, can't wait to see what comes next. Rory joins us today to uh, talk about, again, an episode of three years in the making. And that is 
a look at the career and music of Paul Simon. And we'll somewhat restrict this to the Paul Simon solo years, although I know we'd have to set the table to sort of explain uh, how the Paul Simon solo career got started. But this will be a, a Simon-centric episode, if we can say that three times fast. Rory, tell us uh, a little bit about why you love Paul Simon, how you got into him, and why other people should care about this music we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I mean, it, Paul Simon's personal for me. I, I, I've always uh, had a strong admiration for him, for his solo work, but also for his work, obviously, with Garfunkel. My daughter, my our second daughter's name is Cecilia, uh, inspired by the song, which was inspired by the saint uh, who... Uh, he was pleading to in that Simon and Garfunkel song to stop his writer's block. Um, the kids get homeward bound every night at bedtime. Uh, it, and it all comes really back from, you know, growing up, we had, we had a very musical household. My mom was a Detroit hippie, which is, you know, like a normal hippie, but with a little bit of edge. You know, <laughs> she, liked the, she liked the Beatles, but also MC5 and Iggy Pop. And so we had a really great vinyl collection growing up that allowed me to explore a lot of different uh, types of music. My dad was really into Motown and jazz. And so we, we really just kind of touched on everything growing up. And I really got invested in that 60s and 70s classic rock era. I went to my first Grateful Dead show in 1991 when I was 14. When Jerry died, I kind of hopped on the widespread panic bandwagon. And, uh, and I got down to college in New Orleans and, you know, anybody who's been to New Orleans knows that that city just thrives on music and, and all different types of music really mashing together, which I think is perfect for somebody who likes Paul Simon, because it, Paul Simon is somebody who literally spent his career mashing all these different elements of music together. I think I first encountered him not through my parents' LP collection, but because of like any good Gen Xer, I had BMG and Columbia House subscriptions and Simon, yeah. And Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits was just like the obvious, one of those first eight albums you pick. I had seen The Graduate. I, I, you know, I knew Mrs. Robinson. I kind of knew where it was going, but that great, that greatest hits album really just shows you what an incredible uh, first part of his career he had with, in that duo. In the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trained and he carries the reminders of every glove that laid him down or cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame. I am leaving, I am leaving, but the fighter still remains. And it's it's got that folk that um that edge to a little bit of that uh you know, edge of the Queens plus playing clubs in the village, kind of competing with Bob Dylan. And, you know, it, it was 
it's funny, like a, a critic once gave him this backhanded compliment that, you know, this music's for kids and their parents. But like, it, it's true. Like it was just this cross-generational music that even my kids now today recognize and like and want to listen to. Um, he's got that chip on his shoulder that just kind of comes across, but you know, he, he tries to balance it with humor. Uh, it, it, he's just had this remarkable career. And if you look like at all of the people who have doubted him over the years, I mean, like there was a story of like David Geffen essentially saying, you should go back to college. You're not going to make it. <laughs> and, and his colleague, famous Amos, who made the cookies decided, no, I'm going to take a chance on this kid and actually signed him into the recording industry, William Morris. So, you know, there, there's a lot of, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about the comparisons over, you know, as we go through these songs, Dylan and Everly brothers and, you know, but if you look at his solo career, it's just this really interesting kind of angsty and ambitious journey post Art Garfunkel, you know, it was, it was clearly, a rough split with art. He didn't feel appreciated by him. He wanted to try new things. And he comes off this greatest album of the, you know, that hit album, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And he just knocks it out of the park with his first solo effort. You can beat us with wires. You can beat us with chains. Can run out your rules, but you know you can't outrun a history train. I seen a glorious day, I I'm uh, I'm excited to go through this because it's he's he really is I think maybe underappreciated, which is crazy for somebody who probably could be recognized as one of America's greatest songwriters if you looked at just his work in the '60s or just his work in the '70s or just his work after in the '80s '90s, and uh, I mean there's just a lot to go through. Scott, why don't you go first because I, I I'm thinking guessing, though I'm not certain, uh, that our experiences are roughly coterminous. What was your first experience with Paul Simon, either solo or, as I think may be the case, with, with uh, Simon and Garfunkel? Yeah, this, I, I, I think we'll have similar uh, stories. This is an odd, it's an odd episode. It's an unusual episode in which neither uh, Jeff nor I are, were, were, were insanely fluent in the artist's language. Uh, leading up to the episode, we, we both had to do, to do some homework. We both had to uh, bone up on uh, Paul Simon. And I don't have a particular reason why Paul Simon always seemed to be on, on the periphery of my musical taste. My parents had 50 ways. I'm sorry. Parents had still crazy after all these years on LP on vinyl. And so I know I listened to that a little bit when I was young and more so than the solo stuff, I'm sure, is the, uh, uh, is the Simon and Garfunkel work is the first time I was introduced to Paul Simon's songwriting and his harmonizing. But really, it's Graceland. 
And it's that video for You Can Call Me Al that is my, my first real introduction to, to Paul Simon, I'd say. And that is an iconic video. We, we talk uh, often on the show about, especially the artists through the 80s, how their songs are inseparable from some of the visual imagery in the videos that were on MTV. And I, I don't know if it's, it's odd, but it just is true. You can I'm call sure. Me. I'm sure Paul Simon must love it that the enduring visual image it's of him Chevy as an Chase. artist it, is yeah. a, is about that he, the fact <laughs> that he's also really short. It's actually and is not singing at all. You know, Chevy Chase is doing the lip syncing in in the uh, "You Can Call Me Out" video. But that song is is absolutely inseparable from that video. As I listen, I, I see every mannerism, every uh, you know facial expression from Chevy Chase in that "You Can Call Me Out" uh, video. And, uh, you know, Dan, that song does not still hold up. I, I, I still really love You Can Call Me Out, which uh, which might be one of his most enduring songs in terms of, you know, radio play and a classic hits format. A man walks down the street, he says, why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Bone digger, bone digger. Dogs in the moonlight, far away my well-lit door. Just a beer melon, beer melon, get these mutts away from me, you know. I don't find this stuff amusing anymore. If you'll be my bodyguard, I can be your long-lost pal. I can call you Betty, Betty, when you call me. And I got to, you know, honestly, after Graceland, before this episode, about all I had known from Paul Simon is the um, You're the One album and single. Uh, You know, he had had a terrible decade in the 90s, which we'll talk about. This was the comeback in 2000, which was sort of crafted to be more familiar and almost, you know, tailor-made for a Grammy nomination, which it did have, didn't win, but did have a Grammy nomination for Best Album. And that's about all I knew, uh, specifically post post Graceland. To dig back through here is to dig through, you know, a, a American song, right? From 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 where he started to where he ends up. This journey that Paul Simon takes through the American songbook, uh, whether it be Dixieland or or R uh, and B, and and as we'll see in the '80s and '90s, through a songbook that is not American at all, uh, influenced by by sounds and instruments that are not uh, American in nature. It's a it's a unique trek through the world of music that Paul Simon takes, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it here today. I'm trying to think of the first time I was ever aware of Paul Simon as a solo artist, and, I, and I'm pretty certain that the answer was also Graceland, and you can call me out. And absolutely none of the rest of his material even made an impression on me. I didn't know it existed, much less you know knew whether it was supposed to be good or bad. Only reading about it later, uh, you know, did I you know, I see like little you know hints here and there, like oh, this, this man's work was held in high critical esteem back in the day, and I never got around to investigating it. Not even not until we booked this show this week. Why is that? Well, perhaps that's because of the reaction I initially had as a kid to Simon and Garfunkel. Now, I'm certainly not ultra-familiar with Simon and Garfunkel's music either. I honestly can tell you I've never sat down and listened to an album of theirs from front to back. Not once, never. 
but I at least knew their hits. You had to know their hits because, you know, of course, we had the greatest hits album, too. We had it on vinyl. What we also had on vinyl were his first, or Simon and Garfunkel's first two albums. They're folky albums because, of course, my dad was, you know, an inveterate old folky, as I've mentioned so many times on the show. So, of course, you know, when they went electric, when they went psychedelic with Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time, my dad was off the bus. He's like, only Dylan gets to do that. And he stopped listening to Simon and Garfunkel, ironically enough. So that might explain one reason why there was sort of, uh, you know, a gap in my life when it came to Paul Simon. I didn't really much care for a lot of Simon and Garfunkel's hits. I think I feared them in a sense that I recognized Paul Simon as a songwriter who carried far too many sensibilities and affectations that I recognized in myself. Right. I saw him as the sort of same sort of intellectual, had the same kinds of pretensions, sang in a similar voice, wrote the way I probably would have written. I thought to myself, uh, this is I listened to his songs and something about that kind of freaked me out in a way. It was like looking in a mirror. It's like, I don't want to know anymore about this guy. Let us be lovers. We'll marry our fortunes together. Got some real estate here in my back So we bought a pack of cigarettes And Mrs. Wagner's pies And walked off to look for America Kathy, I said as we boarded a greyhound in Pittsburgh Michigan seems like a dream to me now It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw And I've come to look for a So I completely ignored all of this music up until the very recent past. And I've been missing out. It's interesting. I asked myself, why was it I was never even exposed to this kind of stuff accidentally? Why did it never crop up in all of my musical sojourns throughout the early 2000s, late 90s, all the way up until, geez, 2022, for crying out loud? Why didn't it ever come up? Didn't I ever hear it on the radio? I went back and went through his discography. I've heard none of these songs except for Graceline. That was the one that we got from the library as a kid. I hadn't heard any of the other ones, even on the radio, in passing or anything like that. So what happened? And I guess the conclusion I've come to is that there, for a musician with such undeniable gifts and talents as Paul Simon, there really isn't much of an audience for this kind of music anymore. Uh, it's very adult, it's very mature, it's very considered, but it's also very light. There's no guitars, there's no, no like, heavy electric guitars. Uh, there's no uh, you know, dumb and simple lyrics. The lyrics require you to sit, listen to what he's saying, think about them. It's not, ooh, yeah, I want to give you my love. Every Paul Simon song, for better or worse, is text. <laughs> I'm right? imagining a Paul Simon song including the lyric, ooh, yeah, I want to give you my love. And it is, <laughs> that's, that's amusing. I'll bet you there's one in his catalog that remotely approaches that. I can't think of one. Nothing comes to mind, but there's got to be something that's just like a big, mindless 
dumb love song, like it, almost like 80s hair metal level. You're never going to find that with a Paul Simon lyric. They're all considered. Sometimes, you know, for worse, I mean, he's written some real stiff, stodgy lyrics during his day. There's some of them in his solo career we'll get to, but man, there are some real clunkers with Simon and Garfunkel. Simple de- desultory Philippic. It's just, oh, it's the worst sort of Dylan imitation you've ever heard. Uh, but I love Paul Simon's solo stuff, and it's been such a pleasure to discover it because one of the things that I get from coming to him fresh is I get to be to take on a, like you know his musical approach, and to me, it's very clear what, what Paul Simon is about more even than melody or harmony. Paul Simon's music is fundamentally about rhythmic approaches mm-hmm. to things. She comes back to tell me she's gone, as if I didn't know that, as if I didn't know my own. As if I'd never noticed the way she brushed her hair from her forehead. And she said, Losing love is like a window in your heart. Everybody sees your blown apart. Everybody sees the window. I'm going to Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. so much about rhythm you know first when he's just using his acoustic guitar uh, on his first solo album as we'll discuss he finds incredibly interesting ways to create rhythmic in, you know rhythmic interchange just with guitars but then he branches out into polyrhythms then he branches out into world beat music african music which you know seen in this light is almost like an inevitability it's like why did it take so long for him to get there but when he gets there of course it seems like it's a natural evolution in his career and that's the thing about a guy like paul simon you think of as so so like he's a, a very self-conscious and thoughtful a thinky kind of a person uh but a lot of his music, especially a lot of his best music later in his career, is really uh, very groove-oriented. It's really based upon feel and based upon you know instrumental vibes that he only later on takes and sort of edits into the shape of a song. But that's how he gets that wonderful, spontaneous sound. Anyways, we'll discuss all of this. But I guess the place that we start is... You know what? I don't think you can start with the Paul Simon debut album. I think maybe a place to start is actually with the last simon and garfunkel album now rory i don't know i think you are a pretty big fan you know i mentioned your thoughts on simon and garfunkel already but you know if you want to add any ones here i'm I'm more than more than willing to listen to them i'll simply say this is that regardless of what you think of them they had conquered the rock world at that point which is pretty amazing for two guys who were really essentially nerds you know the nerdiest sort of nerds which are folk nerds from new york city you know who went th- through the coffee shop scene you know became rockers because of bob dylan going electric with the sounds of silence and then started putting out these very weird curate egg art pieces of albums this last one bridge over troubled water i think it's their best of, of all the hits on it at least that i know this is the one that has the title track which hey surprise it's very good the boxer is a great song i actually really like bob dylan's cover of it but this is the one that sets them up. So, I mean, in terms of Bob Dylan as a songwriter, this is or Bob Dylan. In terms of Paul Simon as a songwriter, this is where he was and who he was coming out of the gate and going into his first solo album. You have any thoughts, Rory? Yeah, I mean, like, so it's really uh, perceptive and interesting that you brought up, 
you know, the sophistication of, of Paul and how that somewhat detaches him from the rest of music, because he also acknowledges that, that he had a, a real problem with this, you know, that, that you had to dumb down to be part of rock artistry. And he looked down on other artists who did that. And he really maintained this level of like, he wanted his songs to be smart. He felt that being smart and, and being really invested in the music and the rhythm was, was good. And I, you know, like he collaborated later on in his career with Winston Marsalis and Marsalis said about him, like, you know, he, I think he, uh, serves the right master he serves his, <laughs> he serves creativity not commercialization right and so you so you you get you end up having be, flying a little under the radar now bridge over troubled water not under the radar at all I, it was their biggest album it has some of the most amazing songs written in that era um aside from the title track el condor pasa like you're really starting to see paul try to move into these different world musics yeah world music you've got only living boy in new york this i mean which is just this sweet tender song that also tells this i mean and then you've got the boxer uh they they do like their everly brothers tribute it's and it's i mean they did it all in and i think in like a week that album was recorded which is you know paul simon's typically like a really a lot of artists don't like working with him because he takes a long time hmm. because he wants to sit there and it, he does, he starts with the music first and the lyrics kind of come last and it, his process is really long, but this album that became their, one of their best was something that they, they, they got, I mean, obviously he had probably been writing these songs for a long time, but, um, but it, it, it's, it's really just in a, a very emotional album. And I think it was emotional for him, but, and it, and it doesn't feel like an album of two guys that are about to break up, even though it was very clear that they were going to throughout. Thoughts, Scott? I don't know if you ever listened to any of the Simon and Garfunkel stuff in the past, or if you brought it up, or you know, brought it up again while we were preparing. Yeah, not, not particularly. I, I mean, I I know those Simon and Garfunkel songs. I know those those hits. And actually, knowing the Simon and Garfunkel stuff probably precluded me from getting into Paul Simon earlier than I did, thinking that that what he was doing next would be an extension of that work. And I think there's. Uh, well, I think there's some pretty clear differences and deline delineations to make here as we head into the first solo album. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about, like, Simon and Garfunkel, if I'm going to criticize them, 
you know, I, I don't know. Boy, we should do an episode on them someday. Maybe I'll, I'll dive into their stuff and I'll, I'll have a different view of it. But I've always found it to be a very mannered and stiff sort of pop music. You know, maybe part of Paul Simon's general thinkiness, but also part of Art Garfunkel's incredible whiteness. I mean, who's the, the, the waspiest wasp that, that ever wasped? Uh, Art Garfunkel might as well have black and yellow stripes on his butt because he is a wasp. Uh, and uh, he, when he's freed from all of that and he's not writing for harmonies and he's not trapped within those confines, all of a sudden, Paul Simon becomes a rhythm devil. And it's apparent right on the first second of the first song of his solo album, which came out in 1972. I don't know if it was, it was like really early in the year. So it was pretty swiftly after Bridge Over Troubled Water, which swept up at the awards season in 1971. So fast out the gate, here's his debut album. And the first song is one of his great titles, Mother and Child Reunion, which is, I think, a short order cook slang for uh, chicken and eggs. Uh, because... Yeah, mother and child, you get it, right? That's a great order for breakfast someday to ask for. But it's reggae. And you think Paul Simon, wispy, tiny, white, Jewish Paul Simon doing hardcore reggae beats, ska reggae, that should really fail. But you know what? It, as a, It's kind of a declaration of purpose for his entire career. This proves that, no, it not only does it fail, it succeeds wildly. I love the reggae beat on that song. I love the sweet simple melody of mother and child reunion and it's as auspicious a way to begin a solo career as you could ask for job of just of knocking an album off at the beginning like just getting it going getting you into the mood and this song i mean is by far one of my favorites and it really was like that response to uh to that 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 last era essentially saying i don't need you art i'm gonna do something different i he'd always wanted to do something a little bit more caribbean with garfunkel but he never thought it would come off probably for some of the reasons you said, but you know, he, and this song's by the way, about a, a pet dog getting run over. <laughs> it's, 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 it's this, he's got the choir and the chorus going on in the background. So he's getting the harmonization, but he's not having to be the one producing it. And, um, and it really does just say like, this is the beginning of something new. And, and in a way that is astounding for a, for a track one of a solo career. 
it's also the variety. So like that sets the expectations, and then what comes next? It's this very weird, like aching folk ballad. That's I don't know if it's like either like Andean, South American, or Celtic mystical pipes. I always think the Celtic. That's the way I lean. Yeah. Yeah, well, because I because you know it's Canadian. I think it must be some immigration from like you know like you know. You know, the Hibernian hinterlands in Ireland, they came to the maritime provinces of Canada, and then he, he finds his way down the turnpike. This is just a story, a tale of a, of a man. And I, I actually went and read up on it, and apparently, you know, it might depict an encounter with a member of the Children of God, which is the weird uh, sex cult that Jeremy Spencer of Fleetwood Mac joined. Uh, but I don't know if that's the case or not. Uh, what I know is that, A, it's a massive change of pace. Mother and Child Reunion, and B, it's so beautiful. Those pipe breaks, again, Simon finding a completely different gear than anything I had heard him do with Simon and Garfunkel, and just a very simple and memorable melodic line, that little ascending line in the pipes, uh, it's unforgettable to me. A young girl in a parking lot was preaching to a crowd, singing sacred songs and reading from the Bible. Well, I told her I was lost, and she told me all about the Pentecost, and I seen that girl was the road to my survival. got these great bridges throughout his career and this one's like in, in, in the flute in duncan and he's got the writing that's funny and and it kind of it starts off with a story that just goes nowhere and starts into a different story yeah um it really is it's 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 it, it, it and it does start to set up that there's this that that you're going to be hearing a lot of different things if if you've never encountered paul simon before or the music and you are Beginning your journey with Paul Simon, I don't know how it is not immediately obvious why he's so beloved in in many quarters. Because this album is full of comfortable, accessible music. And again, you you understand why he he is so beloved very early on on this on this solo uh, album. The songs are intimate with very closely observed details in the lyrics. He has a unique voice, which we'll discuss through his career. I mean, certainly there's not many singers who sound like Paul Simon. It's it's an immediately identifiable voice. And you get these songs, the ones you've talked about already, and and, and it's really a great album start to finish with these songs that Paul Simon took from from start to finish and, and, and put his imprint on them as a solo album i will jump ahead we've done song one song two i think song four run that body down uh is one that struck me uh very hard where he's 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 essentially saying you know um what's the what's the line from vienna from billy joel you better cool it off before you burn it out and that that that's the that's the message and run that body down it's a pretty song even though it it sort of lopes at this lethargic tempo but I think it works 
so well. Um, you know, Paul going to his doctor and, and the doctor saying you're going to run that body down if you're not careful. And Paul talking to his wife, Peg, who he divorced in a couple of years with the same sort of message. The guitar flourishes are wonderful. There's these really neat turnarounds in a few places and run that body down. That's a great song, but this album is full of great songs. I said, Peg, you better look around. How long you think that you can run that body down? How many nights you think that you can do what you've been The guitar work that he's doing on this album is different than what he had. And on Run That Body Down, you're getting like those really fine picks and you're getting that like he's playing with a little bit of the electric effect more. And you're, I mean, and that's, you know, I think it's one of only two songs on the entire album that have an electric guitar. Yeah. I think there's that and there's like like a electric rhythm on Armistice Day and that's it. That's the only thing there is. Right. The rest is all like kind of bluesy, uh, more bluesy guitar. Um, well, not rest, but at, at least on a few of the songs, you get a real like he's trying to get like the little shake, like on Armistice Day, he's got the little shaker and the blues guitar going, um, which is funny for like a for political beats that like Armistice Day is all about this waiting on a congressman throughout and the congressman's avoiding him, which he goes kind of throughout like he he hits on Washington a lot throughout his career, but Armistice Day is is, is such a literal version of that. Washington, D.C. I'm coming to see my congressman, but he's avoiding me. Weary from waiting down in Washington, D.C. Man, I've waited such a long time, about waiting all I can. I think that it's the rhythmic variety of this album that grabs me the most. Peace Like a River and Armistice Day are, are both well-written lyrics, and I guess about as, about as political as Paul Simon ever would get. It's funny, Paul Simon, for a good, good New York liberal you know, of long standing and, you know, very, very fashionable in those crowds and scenes. He's never really written political music in any way, right? Well, these two maybe are sort of like a generalized political view, but what matters more to me is the rhythmic fascination you get on a song like Armistice Day, which has this weird, almost like, you know, I guess we, it's a minutely crafted art pop based around acoustic guitar. You have these flurries of acoustic rhythm playing notes and very, you know, weird picking patterns on you know on the fretboard that I 
I find it's the sound of a guy who has this one instrument he can work with, and he's really trying to stretch its boundaries. Like you, you, one thing Paul Simon refuses to do, curiously, is go to a piano, even though he wrote Bridge on Trouble Water on a piano. Like he's, he doesn't write on a piano for this album, really. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, uh, you know, extend himself. He works within guitars. And so you get a lot of that, you know, rhythmic fascination on a song like "Me and Julio" down by the schoolyard, which is just him playing solo acoustic guitar. I think he may overdub himself, so you get like the the, the rub, the crunch of the two guitars playing slightly different rhythm patterns. But that song cooks and it jumps and it's crisp and it's clean and it's clear and it's just one man and a wooden box. I love the lyrics; they're maybe nonsensical, but it sounds like mischief in you know the the urban scene. You know, Mama Pajama rolled out of bed, ran to the police station. When the Papa found out, he began to shout and he started the investigation. You know, it sounds like almost like a little bit of a nursery rhyme, right? Uh, and we don't really know what's going on. It's just, you know, seeing me and Julio down by the schoolyard. That little nagging little chorus, that little nagging line that almost sort of slightly insinuates itself, you know, out of the melodic line that Paul Simon writes and into the chorus. Really clever writing. Mama Pajama rolled out of bed and she ran to the police station. When the papa found out, he began to shout and he started the investigation. It's against the law. It was against the law. Oh, what the mama saw. It was against the law. Who the mama looked down and spit on the ground every time her name gets mentioned. Papa said, oh, if I get that boy, I'm gonna stick him in the house of detention. Well, I'm on my way. I don't know where I'm going. I'm on my way. I'm taking my time, but I don't know where. Goodbye to Rose and the Queen of Corona. See me and Julio down by the schoolyard. See me and Julio down by the schoolyard. A little spoiler. I mean, me and Julio down by the schoolyard is one of my favorite Paul Simon songs of all time because. Well, it, tell me about it. Yeah, it, it just has so much joy in it. Like you, as soon as you get the, as soon as the song starts, you cannot stop yourself from moving to it. It's got. It's he's already starting to test out those African and South American themes. He's got a Brazilian drum throughout it. The backup singers. It, the it, it's soulful. He's got the hard stops. He's got the whistle that I mean you could I could whistle that to myself all day long, you know. Yeah. You know, he, he, and even when we're talking about the you can call me Al video, this one also had a real it had like an iconic video at the moment with Mickey Mantle and John Madden and Spud Webb in it playing basketball on a New York City playground. Like it's 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 New York, it's fun, it's got a great rhythm. It has it kinda, a, like in, the innocence of like you know misbegotten days you spent you know playing hooky from school that's got that right. kind of energy yeah right and I mean you just it, it, you could play it anywhere and everybody in the room is going to be happy with the song and it is it's as you we were saying it's accessible I, I love it I mean he's got some really funny lyrics on this album too paranoia blues 
is just absolutely outrageous. This is a song whose most most enduring image is about him getting his Chinese food stolen from him. So, <laughs> so what was he saying? Like once I was down in Chinatown, and of course he sings it. One of the things about Paul Simon's voice, and I was joking about this on Twitter the other day. It's like, yeah, well, Paul Simon, he does have a wimpy voice, right? Let's be honest. This is not a uh, you know, it's not Robert Plant, okay? But he has a conversational way of singing that really comes across as very direct and very fresh when he has a great lyric to sing. So when he sings, you know, once I was down in Chinatown and, and I was eating some Lin's chow fun, I happened to turn around and when I looked to see, my chow fun's gone. Just the way he says that, it's almost like uh, it gives me a feel of Randy Newman or Warren Zevon, like that sort of droll level of observation. Like, yeah, having people steal your food off the counter when you turn around and go to the bathroom, you come back and it's been taken. And of course, it's all in service of a song where he thinks the world is out to get him. The paranoia blues, you know, from you know, when you knock around New York City where they roll you for a nickel, they'll roll you for a dime. Great song. Actually, the... Um, uh, the album has a reissue. The reissued album has a bonus version of it, an alternate version that's you know totally different arrangement. Shows you the kind of way he was experimenting with presenting this music. Equally as fun, totally different style. But yeah, I, I just love the wit, the wit and wisdom, I suppose I'll call it, of these songs. Once I was down in Chinatown, I was eating some men's chow fun. I happened to turn around. And when I looked, I see my child phone's gone. Oh, no, no. Oh, no, no. There's only one thing I need to know. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Well, there's only one thing I need to know. Whose side? Whose side? Whose side? Yeah, like cust, cust, and Paranoia Blues, the customs man's going to take me to the back of the room. Whose side do you want? I mean, it is. It, Papa's Hobo for a Detroiter like me is another one. Uh-huh. Where it's very, some very literal observations. Got a hell of a hockey team. Of course, I like that. <laughs> uh, I think he's talking about Gordie Howe in it. He's talking carbon monoxide as perfume. And, like, and he closes that song out with, like, the weatherman lied, which is any Michigan person knows, like, the weather and it you know it's also yeah it so much of this is like travel so much of his career is like travel related it's like yeah. like homer bond it's like i'm just trying to get somewhere and i'm going to tell you how i'm trying to get there and uh and it's like this journey and he just brings you on like the road with him paranoia blues just go back for a moment the arrangement jeff mentioned there's a there's a different arrangement the but the original arrangement i think is so wonderful the way that the combination of those, those horn stabs and, and the bottleneck guitar um, conveys the, the the sense of sort of jitteriness and the you know being on edge that the song lyrically also attempts to to convey. Uh, you know, and Jeff mentioned this Chinese food is stolen. He, he's afraid of getting, you know, uh, a special search at the airport. And this is, you know, years before TSA, of course. He really leans into it vocally, too, on Paranoia Blues, as, as Jeff also pointed out. It's a really nice way to sort of ramp down this Paul Simon album. We haven't even talked about Peace Like a River, which is a great song. Um, again, I, I, I just kind of go back to my original point. If you don't know, uh, if you can't figure out 
why Paul Simon was so beloved, is so beloved in so many corners, this album gives you a really clear picture, uh, an immediate picture as to why it's so. And it ends on a beautiful note, too. You know what I realized as I listened to this album is that there was one other Paul Simon song that I had heard before, and it's the last song on this record. Congratulations. And of all places that I had heard it, Scott, you'll laugh, it was from the bonus CD of Elvis Costello's Kojak Variety. <laughs> so, like, you know, like the outtakes disc of his least loved album, uh, you know, which is just him doing covers of other people's songs. We did a version of Congratulations. I went back and listened to it again. It's not that good. Not a secret why it didn't grab me. Because I think you need the delicacy of the approach, and I guess maybe also the prettiness of Paul Simon's voice to really pull this one off. And it's actually kind of similar to the old Rolling Stones song and its theme, Congratulations, You've Gone and Broken Another Heart. But this one's a little more circumspect. It's got that really sad line where he talks about, I, I noticed so many people slipping away. And many more waiting in lines in the courtroom today, you know, which is to say, I assume that means that they're waiting to get divorced, you know, they're waiting to see the judge or something like that. But it's a very beautiful song and a quiet acoustic ballad. I guess it's sort of a way to reconnect with his oldest roots to sort of close the album on a familiar note, but also an entirely worthy note. I'm going to lay my cards down right now and say anything very close. This might be his best album. Congratulations. way to start when i was familiarizing myself with his music um he only hey, gets I, more, I, I, you yeah. guys do you guys know the song dark night by dave alvin no we do not it's it's uh, so it was so random i was listening to the, you, you're talking about peace like a river and i was listening to this album this week and there's this it, i know it from the dusk till dawn soundtrack as <laughs> bad as that could be and it's and they they steal they get completely 100 steal his guitar riff in peace like a river but it's that kind of, you know, opens like a Western movie shootout and it has that Western bluesy guitar and it's kind of dark. And it really, I mean, that's also, I think, just an underrated song on that on this album. Congratulations is is good. It's just slow. It's a really slow song. Yes. Which is why I'm glad it was at the end of the at the well, end. Well, he knew what he was doing by not putting it somewhere right. in the middle of the thing to slow all the momentum down. Right. Well, this brings us to his second album. At this point, he still has a somewhat sort of, I guess, realistic relationship to release schedules. Uh, he's going to get really crazy soon. He's going to become very much like Kate Bush, who we forces that we covered on our last episode. But for now, he's actually trying to put out an album every year or so. So in 1973, he finally comes out with his fresh batch of songs. There goes Ryman Simon. Uh, and I was really hoping that the album cover would be a cover of like the Simon game, you know, that lights up, <laughs> you know, but nothing doing. It actually looks more like shoots and ladders than anything else. Uh, this is actually for a lot of people, his most beloved album. 
it was one of his, I think, his most successful. Didn't win the Grammy. The next one wins the Best Album Grammy. But this one had a bunch of hit singles on it and is widely loved. I think it's a, a notable step down from the first album. But it's still an excellent album. I mean, I think it suffers, I guess I'm going to characterize it as suffering from too much 70s keyboard. Uh, by which I mean that, that sort of soft, delicate, tasteful glissando tone that you get on synthesizer keyboards from the 70s when they're trying to do a sensitive ballad this album's got that one so it's still crazy after all these years they've got that in spades that's i think the writing isn't quite as diverse but gosh how can you not love a song like kodachrome it's yeah. one of my favorites it's one of my favorites of all time it really is it's a perfect slice of 70s pop and even when i was not uh, digging into the paul simon discography it's one that i always enjoyed and, and held very dear it's uh I, I'm, I'm fascinated by you know nostalgia we you know in, in radio nostalgia is like the cheapest emotion if you want to get the phone lines going ask people what used to be better around here right what restaurant uh, that's closed do you wish we still had you know what was it like 25 years ago? And the phone lines will light up for hours. People never tire about talking about the past because... Or on Twitter. I mean, I've learned a secret. One of the big secrets of my feed, how I get all those followers, is that people really love talking about old music. It's nostalgia for them. Yeah. And yeah. People Kodak, want to just think about that. Kodachrome has this 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 sort of dual nature in, in the narrator here. Paul himself uh, is is a little darker, right? Uh, when when he looks back, he he needs the the pictures, the Kodachrome pictures, to show him uh, the green green grass. Uh, the pictures are in color. They only remember. You don't take pictures of the bad times. You take pictures of the good times. And so the, the those those Kodachrome pictures are the ones that sort of brighten his his black and white world. Also, um, Kodachrome is kind of artificial coloring, too. Yeah. I think that's an element of it as well. That's sort of like technicolor, that it, it sort of sweetens things and makes them hyper-real. Not as it actually happened, but I guess in the sort of like, you know, gauzy, it's, it's the fondly remembered version of something yeah. as opposed to the reality. That's why that's a beautiful metaphor. wonder I can think at all And my lack of education hasn't hurt me none I can read the writing on the wall Code of Lyrically, you know, genius. The uh, everyone knows the opening couplet, and then I like the. I think it's the very next line where you know his lack of education hasn't hurt him none. Uh, using the double negative, showing in fact, you know, the lack of education perhaps has hurt him some. Uh, musically, you know, the speed slow, speed slow. I, I love that sort of gallop that the song reaches. Uh, Kodachrome, just three minutes or so of just perfect seventies pop. It's a fantastic song. Yeah, it's a great way to open the album again. And 
you know, it was, it was going to be going home and then he felt like that was too easy. So he turned it into Kodachrome and it really is kind of a song about Instagram now. Right. I mean, it's like, he's talking about like, it makes you think the world is a sunny day. Everything looks better than in real life. He's taught, I mean, he's kind of talking about how we put these filters on still. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so, it, it so it kind of makes the song a little timeless and it, it's really also starting to fill out like his music starting to fill out a little bit more. There's more, more songs, more tracks, more studio work, and he's experimenting a little bit more. Um, it is a, a, a tremendous opening um, to another great album. I mean, I think it's a fantastic song. And I think the album as a whole is very, very, very good. But I do have to say that I consider it to be a disappointment given its, I guess, its commer- commercial and critical reputation, right? I, I think there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of tasteful balladry here that doesn't do anything for me. So, like, something's so right. Ah, no, I don't need that. I think that's got... You know, it's like the David Spinoza on guitar. It, it, it's it's the last thing I want. The string arrangements are by Quincy Jones, and you know, so you've got a nice sort of tasteful soul feel. But coming from Paul Simon, it feels a little generic. Kind of, I get a similar feeling with tenderness. Hmm. But then, right in between those two songs, on, on a first half that I consider to be fairly weak, it opens with Kodachrome, and in the middle of it, it has a song called "Take Me to the Mardi Gras," which is one of the weirdest strangest, saddest, most beautiful things he ever did. I don't know if Rory likes this since he did go to school in New Orleans. Did you go to Tulane, by the way, Rory? Is that where yeah, you Yeah, that's right. Yeah? Uh, so I don't know if you love Take Me to the Mardi Gras as much as I do, but what a slow, sad, beautiful, wonderful ballad that is. That doesn't sound anything like you would have expected a song with Mardi Gras in the title to actually sound. <laughs> right. It's so it is... Uh... It's like this mashup of country and Jimmy Buffett and Jamaica. And it, it goes in like all these different weird directions. The Muscle Shoals rhythm sections doing like the Jamaican thing, which isn't really natural for them either. And the horn. But it, I think my favorite part of the song is that the horn section at the end where it's like it's like the narrator makes it to the Mardi Gras. Like right. it, it like there is a, there is a positive conclusion that all of a sudden he's just walking down, you know, Royal Street and there's a brass band playing and he gets to listen to him for a few seconds. Um, I think it's I mean, listen, it's not ever going to be an iconic Mardi Gras song. It's not going to make the Indians uh, uh, walk down the street boogieing, but it is. It's not about that. It's about it's a weary. About it's about a weary spirit finding, you know, give me the beat boys and free my soul. I want to get lost in rock and roll and drift away. You know, remember Dobie Grace singing that song? This is yeah. kind of like that, where you say you take your burdens to the Mardi Gras, but you can let the music wash your soul. You can mingle in the streets. You can jingle to the beat of Jelly Roll. That's that's a beautiful sentiment, and it's a really beautiful song. I think it's I think it's actually it, it's that and Kodachrome. Those are the best two songs on the album, in my opinion. Take your burdens to the 
Jeff's on to something. I think the front half of the album is more of a disappointment. I think it does pick up toward the end. There are a few songs. I think One Man's Ceiling is Another Man's Floor is a really pretty song. I love that cascading piano intro before it toughens up a bit. Lyrically, I I, uh, I think about Rear Window, the great Hitchcock film, where you've got a guy who uh, is kind of pushing his nose in other people's business and yet is surprised when he becomes uh, a part of the story. The fact that uh, at the very end of the song, they call out, they, they know his name, they call out his name, um, and it eventually transforms into almost this, this sort of boogie-woogie piano toward the end. I think that's a fun song. I think uh, I think St. Judy's Comet is a, a nice lullaby. It's something yes. that he will return to a few times in the course of his career, this, this sort of lullaby uh, construction. And um, again, uh, being a parent, we're all parents here. Uh, and actually, I just had this happen this past weekend. You know, St. Judy's Comet is, you know, he wants his son to stay up to see the comet, but at the same time, it's bedtime and it's routine time. And, uh, you know, you need your sleep too. Hey, great NFL games this past weekend. I let my son stay up, watch the end of the Kansas City and, uh, and Buffalo game. How do you deny him uh, Patrick Mahomes and, and Josh Allen? How do you deny a kid uh, a chance to see a comet? Uh, that push and pull back and forth in the lyrics of St. Judy's Comet is just very sweet and very relatable, at least at this time for me. Yeah, I mean, so it's got it's got some, like American Tune is probably one of the best lyrical songs in the album but not necessarily the best musical Just yeah like, yeah the the horns don't work on it at all for me right uh, not, right not but, at all. but lyrically some of his best stuff And then what what a sunny day is I think it you know he he loves Jimmy Cliff he collaborated with Jimmy Cliff a lot it kind of opens almost like I can see clearly now and it's like it's almost an ode to that song and it's got um also has just some great lyrics that that are positive and optimistic and make you kind of want to be drinking a red stripe somewhere um I, I totally agree on St. Judy's comment it's also it's not just great on the lullaby part it's funny like if as a parent you'll find it funny but also even very self-aware like it, i love the line because if i can't sing yeah. my boy to sleep well it makes your famous daddy look so dumb <laughs> yeah i mean it's such a great line like I, how, paul simon can't get his kid to sleep how can anyone else exactly well, sang it once and sang it twice and gonna sing it three times more Gonna stay till your resistance is overcome Cause if I can't sing my boy to sleep Well, it makes your famous daddy look so dumb It looks so dumb Won't you run, come see St. Judy's Comet Roll across the skies 
And leave a spray of diamonds in its way I long to see St. Judy's comet sparkle in your eyes When you awake Or when you wake away Little boy, little boy Won't you lay your body down And uh, it, it's, you know, and then it like loves me like a rock at the end. I mean, it, that song's lived on longer than I, I got theories about that song. OK, Rory, what do you think that song is about? Because I, I have a completely harebrained one and that, that is probably incorrect. I, I, I think it's about a, a kid thinking that his mom's going to love him no matter what he does, even if it means becoming president. <laughs> we'll see okay i i have i think this is just a weird nixon commentary all right i think of the time i think of the place was 1973 is in the middle of the watergate scandal nixon hasn't resigned yet but he's on his way out okay this is this is during the period where it's all you know and of course everybody hated nixon even after 1972 even after the blowout i just think of that line where he says like you know if i'm the president and you know, first of all, the the framing of the song you have to understand for those who aren't familiar. Where it's just like this trope was like, you know, when I was a little boy and the devil would call my name, I would be like, say, who do you think you're fooling? Basically, like, get thee behind me, Satan. You know, and that you know, I'm a good boy in my Sunday church, and my mama loves me. She loves me like the Rock of Ages. Really great song, really great chorus. But then the final verse gets weird. You know, right? Final verse goes where like, if I was president and Congress called my name, I'd say, now who do you? Who do you think you're fooling? So what I'm asking here is, is Paul Simon equating Congress to the devil? I don't know. This is what we mean when we say we should be careful reading political metaphors into his song. But I've always wondered if it's some sort of like Nixon defying congressional requests for his tapes kind of a commentary. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, for the last two weeks I've been trying to do research on this and I found nothing on it whatsoever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, somebody who's a longtime fan is going to listen to this and correct me on it. And if I was the president, oh, the, president. the minute the Congress called my name, I mean, he does, he does get into all these paternal and maternal themes throughout. I mean, even yeah. aside from St. Judy's comment, learn how to fall is essentially a song to your child. Right. And, uh, but I don't know if Congress being the devil was where he was going. <laughs> I don't think it was. <laughs> but it's just funny to try to parse out these things, you know, because yeah, very similarly to Kate Bush, uh, Simon is an author who writes with purpose, right? It's not just images that are randomly spooled about, thrown into a bag and plucked and thrown together. The way a lot of author, a lot of music's, musicians write, like Tom York, for example, will write that way. Whereas Paul Simon has texts and conceits. So, I, you know, it's fun to sort of just try to drill down and figure out what it is he's talking about. Um, by the way, I mean, does anybody have any final thoughts on Rhyme and Simon before we move on to the most important record of the show? <laughs> let's, let's go. Let's get crazy. The that, of course, is what you guys have been waiting for, a Paul Simon live album. 
Uh, no, it, it's live rhyming. Uh, it's actually pretty. I, what I would say, listening to it, I was like, "Well, that was more interesting than I expected it to be." <laughs> you know, because again, fundamentally, Simon is an acoustic guitarist. Even if there's a stadium full of people, he's just one man with one guitar. He does bring in some interesting, so like uh, some backing vocalists and the flute players on Duncan are there. It's really beautiful. But ultimately, it's just like an interesting live album. And, of course, what happens next is uh, the one that actually won the Grammy. Uh, still crazy after all these beers. Uh, Paul Simon had to drink a lot of beers. Uh, years. Still crazy after all these years. And I will open by saying the thing that makes me saddest of all is that there are 50 ways to leave your lover, but he couldn't figure out one that rhymed with Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> is, did I see the story? Is Was that just a, was that the, also a song, Rory? Maybe you know that was based on him talking to his kids. I, I had read somewhere that he was explaining to his kids how, how rhyming worked, essentially, and that's how the chorus sort of began, that uh, kind of simplistic name, rhyming chorus. I, 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 so I don't know if that would be the case because it also is really a, a dig on his divorce. Yeah. Right. I don't know if you'd want to like use your divorce as a way to teach your kids how to rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> but, I suppose so. That's, that, that's not good for harmony in the family. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you think about like this, this album comes out, his life is kind of chaotic. His marriage is falling apart. He's really successful, but he's super unhappy. Um, by the way, the the this is also his marriage ending is just this classic Paul Simon story that has to be told. He's sitting and listening to Stevie Wonder album because Stevie Wonder was up against him in the Grammys all the time and he's super competitive. And he's dissecting the Stevie Wonder album and his wife Peggy comes in and interrupt him and he says, I, I not now. She comes in a second time. He says, I can't come now. She comes in a third time. He gets up, walks out the door, never comes back to his marriage. <laughs> because she interrupted him listening to Stevie Wonder. Uh, yeah, it's it's certainly not the sort of story that reflects particularly well on a person. But no, yes, no. monomaniacal it, is the way you would describe his competitiveness. Yeah. Yes, yes. It is, um, it is, it is definitely music was 100% his wife at that point. And he's he's best friends with Lauren Markle, Lauren Michaels. He's trying to do the SNL stuff. He starts to date Carrie Fisher, and it's just got all of these '70s vibes are in it. You know, <laughs> like it is. It, 1970s are packed into this album. at the depth of shot but there's just a giant pile of cocaine in the background there all right <laughs> you can never forget that in fact that's why we'll get to this but that's of course why he's in he's in annie hall 
by Woody Allen in that classic scene uh, with with the cocaine, where Woody Allen sneezes and blows it all away. I'm sure he was writing from life, like <laughs> what that Los Angeles scene must have been like. But again, still crazy after all these years, Paul Simon suddenly has a mustache. This is mustache yod Simon era. That's the way I like to think of it. Um, you know, that song itself is great, but 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, I mean, that's that's obviously the headliner here. I mean, that's one of his finest songs ever, in my opinion. Scott, what do you think of it? It is. That's the best song here, and one of the classic songs of his entire career, that, that military-style drumming that works, uh, the big break from the verses to the chorus, and, and, and the escalation of the chorus, too, uh, not just in terms of the ways to leave your lover, but the you know, the, the rising of the notes through the chorus. Um, I, I'm always curious, I don't know if we have an answer, who he's asking for advice. It's a female, right? Because, you know, she says, that's what the lyrics say, asking another female for advice on how to leave uh, his lover. I don't know who well, I assume asking. he was asking his son for advice, apparently. <laughs> yeah. What Rory says is true, yeah. And there's always that, there's that twist late where he, he begs her to explain more about the 50 ways. Like, it's not blatantly obvious enough in the chorus. Like, it's a pretty simple way, you know? Step out the back, Jack. There's not much. What else do you need explained here? But it is a fantastic song. She said, it grieves me so to see you in such pain. I wish there was something I could do to make you smile again. I said, I appreciate that. And would you please explain about the 50 ways? She said, why don't we both just sleep on it tonight? And I believe. In the morning you begin to see the light And then she kissed me And I realized she probably was right There must be 50 ways to leave your lover 50 ways to leave your lover You just slip out the back, Jack Make a new plan, stand. You don't need to be coy, Roy Just get yourself free Or you hop on the bus I like Still Crazy a little less than I like. There Goes Ryman Simon, which I like a little less than Paul Simon's debut album. This gets toward his more kind of jazz pop tendencies. There are some ace New York City players that are on Still Crazy after all these years. Thematically, lyrically, yes, there's a lot about his divorce, or at least you know, yeah. pre-divorce, post-divorce. It's a, it's a much more adult album than even the past two albums, which is saying something. And there's d- disillusionment that seeps into some of the lyrics here and there. I think there are some real missteps. Um, I, I do it for love. I think is pretty lifeless. I, I don't like that real extended baseball metaphor and night game. There's a sense I like that one. Do, actually, yeah. there's a sense to me. That what came very natural to him early on is beginning to get a bit harder and a bit tougher uh, to to sort of bash these songs into fighting shape. It's not to say there are not some good things here. I think Have a Good Time is one of my favorite Paul Simon tracks. Um, A a guy who's sad but just determines he's going to have a good time. There's a great Fender Rhodes piano horns the slinky guitar part i love that verse where he says maybe i'm laughing my way to disaster maybe my race has been run maybe i'm blind to the fate of mankind but uh, what can be done 
it's a Newman, very Randy Newman-esque sort of flavor, sort of sentiment on Have a Good Time. I think he pulls that one off really well. It's probably my second favorite song on the album. Paranoia strikes deep in the heartland But I think it's all overdone Exaggerating this, exaggerating that They don't have no fun I don't believe what I read in the papers They're just out to capture my time I ain't worrying and I ain't scared I'm having a good time Have a good time Have a good time Have a good time And I guess, you know, we have to talk about certainly the uh, the reunion here between Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel on My Little Town, a song so great it was included on both of their solo albums uh, from the same year. This how much is... negotiation do you think went into that? Like, how many lawyers were in the room <laughs> to get signatures on the contracts and the record labels agreeing to it to allow them to both release that song on one album? Because, yeah, that was a huge deal commercially yeah both of those solo albums performed pretty well all right and then that single i think went to top five i believe or something like that so like yeah this is stuff that's just completely passed you know over my head in the modern era but this is a huge deal in the mid 70s yeah this one has not does not did not have legs right this this is not a song that you're going to hear in many corners these days and it's an odd choice for a reunion song thematically I, i i think it's you know, it's essentially what, like a 17, 18-year-old, something like that maybe, talking about the grimness, the oppressiveness of his little town, the schools and the factories. The rainbows don't even have colors in his town. <laughs> Not because they're, the colors aren't there, but because they just lack imagination. And you get to the final uh, verse where he says he's twitching like a finger on the trigger of a gun. He's just waiting. He can't wait to explode maybe put on Born to Run and get out of my little town. Um, look, it's a good song. I, I think it's a little odd choice for a uh, for a reunion track with Garfunkel, but it all worked out in the end. It's not exactly a love letter to New York City either, is it? You know, I, it, it, it's, it's very much uh, uh, a poison pen kind of a thing, yeah. but uh, I do like it. I think, I think it's, it's, it, it's pretty nifty, especially I think it builds to a pretty good climax. Saving my money Dreaming of glory Twitching like a finger On the trigger of a gun Leaving nothing but the dead Dying back in my little town Nothing but the dead Dying back in my little So I was my little town is one of my favorite songs on this album. Um, I I love it. I I think that the piano opening is 
just so simple that anybody who's been learning piano for like a year could play it. But then it gets really more powerful after that. It's got, uh, it's got that change in tempo about two thirds of the way in and then they repeat it. And it's taking like the listener from this head bop to this heavy head bop. You got the cymbals, the harmonizing like old times, these really deep piano chords and horns. It's a really good song. And this, and, and by the way, he, Paul gave it to Art Garfunkel for his album. And Art said, let's, it's so good, let's put it on both. And I'm sure that the labels did spend some time lawyering it up, but it was actually a nice moment of, of partnership for two guys who don't have many of those to talk about. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, this is going to be a recurring theme throughout the rest of the show is when Art Garfunkel and Paul Simon periodically reunite and then, of course, immediately fall apart thereafter because they, they just really can't be together for that long anymore without getting sick of one another. Right. But, the, I other, mean, the, other, the other good album uh, uh, song on this album that y'all didn't mention but I think is really great is gone at last. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It, it, like you've got Phoebe Snow and the Jesse Dixon singers. It's I feel like he's almost barely there on that song. It's almost like all the guests take over for him. Yeah, I mean Phoebe's duet is really I think beautiful, and it right. gets and it gets you moving in the gospel sections. It gives you something, and, and you have to think of the time like this music was not crossing over, and he's like bringing this into the mainstream. I ain't done. Um, this album also has some clunkers in it, for sure. I mean, he's starting to deliver some clunkers. I think "Have a Good Time" is meh. I think "Silent Eyes" is meh. I didn't. I don't really like "Night Game." I didn't like "I Do It for Your Love." Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover is is probably the corniest song with legs, and it's okay. Like I could hear it tomorrow, and I'd, I would I would bop along to it. Um, but it is it, it's he's got some real soulful. Um, deep mixes in here in the middle of some 70s, you know, just 70s ge generic, you know, keyboard stuff. I also, I mean, there are other things I'd criticize him. There's that, you know, I guess that, you know, the smooth, easy listening tones of some folks' lives roll easy. Totally. Never really did it for me. I don't know if I've really liked what he does with strings. Simon's instincts with strings are, you know, not the best. They seem to betray two separate cliches of, of, I guess, his life experience, which is like on the one hand, there's the coffee shop, twee chamber folk. And then on the other hand, there's the smooth L.A. gloopy babyhood 70s style approach. Uh, 
he doesn't use strings the way he uses percussion, for example. I think he uses percussion far more creatively. And I think also it's ironic. This is the one that he won the best album of the year, the album of the year award for on the Grammys. And of course, he famously, when he went up, you know, Rory was already talking about how competitive Paul Simon was, especially when it came to Stevie Wonder. First thing he says is when he accepts the award, he says, I'd like to thank Stevie Wonder for not releasing an album this year. Because I think actually that was the year he'd had an auto accident, which is always about made it a slightly tasteless because Stevie Wonder was lying in a hospital bed recuperating. You know, this is before Songs in the Key of Life was about to come out. Uh, but uh, it just shows you how much he, you know, how much mind share Wonder's uh, success occupied with him. And the more weird part, and this is one that, again, Simon's career is so new to me that I don't really understand what was going on. He didn't make another album for half a decade. Five years off. Rory, do you know what went on here? Because I don't. Uh, I mean, I, I can't account for the five years. I can account for that. I think he was trying to figure out, like, where he wanted his life to go. You know, like, he, it was just chaotic at the time. And I think he wanted some time. He was doing a lot of interesting things back then outside of creating music. He was teaching music. He was learning music. He was taking music classes even around this time. He was taking a like classical guitar lessons. Yeah, I think he mentored the Roches, who were a really interesting yeah. girl group, female uh, singing band from the New York City area, who I really like. But again, kind of a small 70s NYC culture thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's also, he's, he's, he's hanging out with, you know, his SNL buddies and who knows doing what, but. He's cameoing in Ken Annie Hall, you know, as, yeah, as the record producer. I mean, but if you go back just to the titles, the title track still crazy. I mean, it's literally emanates from him crying in his shower. I mean, he's <laughs> he's in a dark spot. Yeah, yeah. So and, I think I, I think the break is somewhat of a I need to get life on track. And he just didn't have songs. Uh, the, there was a greatest hits album released, I think, in '77, that was largely released because he just didn't have his songs for the next album. He, and, and I, I don't know well enough to know whether that was because they, he literally had a, a, a sort of writer's block or he just couldn't get the songs. You know, he is somewhat of a perfectionist as, as we'll see. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who one of, his most fam- one of his most famous ever hits was written about his writer's block, which is Cecilia, which is yeah. the song that Rory named his daughter for. So like, yeah, writer's block is a recurring theme throughout his career. And of course this, this is also, Will, will take us to a very controversial issue later on during the Graceland years. It, we should mention very quickly, on that Greatest Hits album is a song that almost everyone knows. I, I don't have a lot to say about Slip Sliding Away, but it is one of his, his better-known tracks. Uh, I'll, I'll say, I guess, it is pretty neat how many Paul Simon song titles simply have become part of our vernacular, right? I mean, Slip Sliding Away... Um, Bridge Over Troubled Water, Still Crazy After All These Years, even something like 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. I always think, you know, if the New York uh, Post could do a headline based on a song title, you've pretty much, you know, entered the English language. And all of those, you could you could see any of those being used as a, as a headline in the New York Post, depending on the story of the day. Those... It also helps that Paul Simon is so quintessentially New York. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. something about the meter and the cadence of his of his voice, his speech, the lyrics, his diction, the the way he chooses to express himself that just screams New York City, and a specific kind of New York City. He actually comes across more as like a Manhattan intellectual than he, he was grew up kind of a Queens working class kid. 
But I think he more he affected the folky Greenwich Village kind of a thing during that '60s scene when he came up. But yeah, that's actually one of the most appealing things about Paul Simon's voice to me is that it has a very, very clear sense of like time and place to it. I know this man. I know kind of where he lives and what his general cultural experiences are just because of the way he expresses himself, the little turns of phrase. Everything about it just says New York. God only knows. God makes his plan. The information's unavailable to the mortal man. We're working our jobs. Collect our Every time he needs any type of a pick-me-up, what's he do? He gets a half million people to show up at Central Park and he does a concert. <laughs> exactly. Basically, yeah, he's rented out that central stage, you know, on the big lawn on Central Park because everyone's going to show up for a Simon and Garfunkel thing. You know what they didn't show up to do, though, is they did not show up to the movie theaters to see the film <laughs> One Trick Pony. <laughs> One Trick Pony, Paul Simon's inevitable doomed vanity project. You had to decide what it is you wanted to do. Did he want to continue being a songwriter and a musician? Maybe he didn't want to go into acting. Well, he made the worst mistake possible. He decided to do both simultaneously. So he got a crappy album and a crappy film. The film is like so forgotten that I don't even think you can find it on YouTube. The album might as well have the same fate. It's actually almost a curiously inexplicable failure. I find it to be, with the exception of the title track and I think maybe one other song on it, um, to be almost bizarrely, inexplicably meaningless. It's not yes. aggressively yeah, bad. Yeah. Nothing about it is like offensive. It's not like metal machine music. It's just pointless. It's there, like you decided to come back for this. There's no there there on one trip pony and for a guy as talented and well-loved as paul simon he has at least two complete disasters in his catalog and i might argue three later on and And he had so much time off to prepare too that's the weird part and and one trick pony is is one of them i i I think it's really a, a total misfire it's sort of it's slipping I mentioned he sort of began this sort of light jazz fusion feel on uh, Still Crazy, and, and it sort of is taken to its extreme point through most of One Trick Pony, to which the, the songs never really land. Um, you know, he, he has kind of a crack band assembled here. Steve Gadd is, is, is the drummer on most of these songs on One Trick Pony. The musicianship is pretty solid. Uh, like on One Trick Pony, one of the live tracks has a great guitar tone, but the songs are just are just not strong. Ace in the Hole is just a very generic song. Nobody is is treacly. Uh, there's no spark to a song like Jonah. Uh, Jeff mentioned the the title track, One Trick Pony. Yeah, it's probably the second best. It does not get any better than the first track, and that's yeah. just a decent song. Late in the evening, it has kind of a me and Julio feel to it. These clanking drums, these horns. 
I think I don't know if he's trying to recreate that same sort of feel that he had what eight years earlier. Then I learned to play some lead guitar. I was underage in his funky bar, and I stepped outside and smoked myself a J. It gets halfway there, and that's about the high point on the album. There's not much at all, especially in the second half, that I can say good about on One Trick Pony. It's a it's a pretty clear, real disaster. It's my favorite album. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you know, we've had some weird takes on this show. You know, I was, I for a second I thought that I caught my breath. I thought, oh no, it was. It's not a good album. Um, it, I, I think the only song I would defend on it is late in the evening. I think late in the evening is a good song. I think that I wish that he would have remixed this one a little bit later in his career. Cause I think that the lyrics and the song is good. I think some of the steel drum gets to the point where you feel like you're on a cruise ship. <laughs> yeah. It's carnival cruise lines in the, in, in, in the room with the conga line. Yeah, I get it. But I mean, it, you know, the late in the evening and I blew that room away. Like you kind of feel like what's going on. You can kind of stick with it, but there's really nothing else on this album. I would defend. What's weird is that the movie itself is about a folky of all people. It's kind of like an inside Lewin Davis thing, uh, but like, you know, failed folky. Uh, I've never seen it. I never will. I see it. It shall never darken Jeffrey Blair's door. Um, <laughs> so, but, someone, uh, someone wrote one trick pony only makes sense as an album. If you think Paul Simon's trying to write, as well as his character in the actual movie. Like he's trying to write subpar, right. awful stuff that would never get traction. See, that's actually really in keeping with the Inside Lewin Davis thing, which is a Coen Brothers movie, for those who aren't familiar. It's a great film um, about like the 60s folk scene, which, by the way, Paul Simon would have been intimately familiar with because he was there as well. But yeah, it's just like such a curiously like, punchless you know, uh, punchless sound. And you're right, I love the idea of it being just like his second-rate songs <laughs> this is the best that that guy could do but it's certainly not the best that paul simon could do and of course what happens next is uh simon and garfunkel reunite this is the the joke that rory made about getting you know you can always run out in central park uh they reunite for the concert in the park uh you know estimates go from anywhere from fifty thousand people to five hundred thousand people attended this thing i have no idea a lot of people saw the concert in the park Simon and Garfunkel reunite for the first time since, you know, still crazy, but certainly the first time live since 1970 or 69. And uh, it's not only a big deal, but it sparks them on a, a worldwide tour. This is, I think, maybe the, one of the first real reunion worldwide tours, is it? I mean, you know, think about like, you know, like, you know, like great acts getting back together to cash in. This has got to be one of the first since it's 1982, 83 when he does it. And he's supposed to record his next album with Art Garfunkel. It's going to be a reunion album. Simon and Garfunkel's getting back together. But then he pulls in Neil Young. Well, you know, Neil Young would famously, you know, play Lucy, you know, and yank the football away from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. 
you know, as they're going to kick it. And then he's like back out. And then not only would he back out of the sessions, but he'd take his songs with him. After they'd contributed their vocals, he'd be like, yeah, but I'm going to go put this on my album. Well, that's kind of what Paul Simon did. He erased Art Garfunkel's vocals from the record, but he just you know, took his songs and said, I'm going to make my own record instead. That record is Hearts and Bones. comes out in 1983, and I think a lot of people really wanted to see a Simon and Garfunkel reunion, and they were pissed when it didn't happen. So this record got panned by the critics. Uh, it was a commercial flop, his lowest performing record of all time. And I think it's very close to being like one of his best albums. I think it's a really good album. It's a secret album in that sense that I like the fact that it's like kind of right in the middle of like his classic era, and everybody hates it. And no, I think it's actually really great. And also, uh, as a weird thing, I also have to point out the presence of Carrie Fisher runs all throughout this album. Yes, that's right, Paul Simon. While you guys were uh, talking, Paul Simon married Princess Leia. One and one half wandering Jews, free to wander wherever they choose, are traveling together in the Sangre de Cristo, in the blood of Christ mountains of New Mexico. On the last leg of a journey they started a long time ago. The arc of a love affair Rainbows in the high desert air Mountain passes slipping into stones Hearts and bones Hearts and bones Hearts and bones you know, by, by the way, back to the concert in the park real quick. Yeah. The, one of my favorite parts of that concert is at the beginning of the boxer. You can see it on YouTube. The Garfunkel messes up like the second line. And Paul Simon just looks at him with so much derision and shakes his head. <laughs> I haven't seen it. That's, that's very Paul Simon. It's so great. And, and you could just tell Garfunkel's like bracing for after the show. Uh, like we can't retake this art. <laughs> it's um uh, listen, I, I'm not the biggest fan of Hearts and Bones. I think that you're starting to hear some of the sounds that he's gonna use in Graceland. Like mm-hmm. you like it, you're starting to feel like Graceland didn't just happen out of nowhere, right? right? You can kind of see where he's starting to go with some of the rhythms, with some of the sounds. I just feel like the whole album's a little incomplete. Like they didn't really finish or connect what needed to happen to make it really good. Like the title track Hearts and Bones is a good song. Maybe it's a really good song. I just think it's a touch overrated. One and one half wandering Jews return to their natural coasts to resume old acquaintances and step out occasionally speculate who had been damaged the most easy time will determine if these consolations will be their reward the arc of a love affair waiting to be restored you take two bodies and you twirl them into one 
hearts and their bones And it won't come undone Hearts and bones Hearts and bones Hearts and bones Hearts and bones Train in the distance, I like that. Again, we're back to him traveling. and the, But it's also like his messiness of his life is in there. Like she's having a kid and there are these disagreements and it's all going to fall apart. And negotiations and love songs could be mistaken for one and the same. You know, it's he I know he, he goes back to some of these tracks later in his career to try to fix them. I, I don't know if he ever really gets it. The Renee and Georgette Magritte. You know, again, he's kind of to your point earlier, Jeff, on this on the strings. He's kind of trying to be George Martiny with the symphony, and it's, it's not my least really... favorite song on the album. Actually, it's the one that I, I most understand why he wanted to re-record it later on. Yeah, I mean, I get, it, but when I mean, when he re-recorded it, he made it less George Martiny. Yeah, um, it's it it's fine. <clears throat> I, I don't think it's a bad album. I don't think it's a great album. Scott. It's a very good album. I had to look back. I had tweeted something back when I was listening through albums for the first time, and I said it's a little all over the place. And I kind of will stay uh, stand by that. I think there, are, like, cars are cars, uh, might have found a place on our last uh, exclusive content episode of worst songs. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, worst songs from our favorite artists, and that, that's that's a bad song. There are a few places, and actually, I think allergies is not one of the better songs on this album. That's the first track. But oh, I love to. You know what I like about allergies? I like about allergies is that I feel like it's a that's a song that's about Carrie Fisher. There's that line where he says, "My heart is allergic to the woman I love, and it's changing the look of my face." First of all, great line, but I really think that's a riff of what life inside the Carrie Fisher cocaine tornado was like <laughs> at the time. Yeah, yeah, I'm really serious about the changing my face part. Like that much is going to deviate your septum and like mess with mess with your life in, in crazy, crazy ways. And this is 1983 uh, when she was at the absolute depths. I mean, people talked about this when she passed away, but yeah, she is truly, her cocaine intake was legendary. Even, even the members of Fleetwood Mac looked at Carrie Fisher and said, that's a lot, don't you think? That's the kind of lifestyle she was leading. And she was married to Paul Simon, who was this kind of quiet stay-at-home guy. That must have been a crazy kind of taming of the shrew-style relationship. My heart can't stand a disaster. My heart can take a disgrace. But my heart is allergic to the women I love. And it's changing the shape of my face. Allergies, allergies. Something's living on my Rory mentioned my two favorite songs on this record. One is Hearts and Bones, the title track. I think it's more than just a good song. I think it's a, it's a great song. Um, but each, kind of each, each love we have, each loss we have, shapes us forever. That's the, very much a Carrie Fisher song, too, I think, too. Um, and then Train in the Distance is one of my all-time favorite Paul Simon songs. Train in the Distance is uh, is really a wonderful track about it's, it's kind of laid back, low key. I think it throws back a bit to you know the, the first two albums and the way it, it's it constructed. Um, and it's um, 
it's kind of making the same mistake over and over. She, this, this woman was married when the two met, and then she was divorced, and they married, and guess what? That's going to end up badly, too. Um, he was so determined to make it happen that they did, and then there's a kid involved, and they're still friends, and sometimes they have breakfast together. Um, this is such a straight song. You know, sometimes Paul Simon's songs can be sort of ciphers, but this one is so straight, the moral is even in the song. The very last lines, you know, what's this all about? Well... Uh, the, the great thought that life could be better is woven indelibly into our hearts and brains. Uh, always looking for something more, always looking for something better. I think melodically it's very strong. Uh, Train of the Distance is my favorite cut on hearts and bones. Everybody loves the sound of a train in the distance. Everybody thinks it's true. Everybody loves the sound of a train in the distance. Everybody thinks it's true. What is the point of this story? What information pertains? The thought that life could be better is woven indelibly into our hearts and our brains. I hate that sort of directness about Paul Simon's lyrics. There's a certain kind of critic that looks at that line that you just read and kind of groans and rolls their eyes, saying it's so on the nose. And I agree, it's dangerous to write like that because you can't. You can sound like you know a precocious student writing a term paper if you're not careful. Simon gets away with it because his writing is so plain spoken. He really is. His quality control, of course, is legendary. He's obsessive about like like working every word. Like he'll take a word, he'll substitute a, a more simple word that isn't as complex or is, is needlessly sort of you know highfalutin. Uh, that line is a good example of how he gets away with making an observation that could otherwise sound preachy, sound sort of like conversational, like you're having a talk with a guy you know or a friend. And that's what I really respect about a lot of the really tough, tough observations on Hearts and Bones on this album. The other song I'll mention quickly is Think Too Much A, not Think ah. Too Much B, because there's a big difference, both lyrically. You stole it. This is where I was going. Yeah, you go for it. Yeah, and melodically, this is a fun, funky song. And when, you know, Rory says you can see where some of Graceland is coming from, I think this is exhibit A. That There are other places here, no doubt, but... Think too much, A, when you you have Nile Rodgers. All the uh, marimbas. That's so great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Bernard Edwards plays bass. Steve Ferrone, who would later drum for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers after Stan Lynch was kicked out. That's a killer, killer music, uh, you know, uh, uh, music lineup. Killer, killer players on this song. And, uh, man, you know, lyrically it's just relax, slow down toward the end. Hold, Just hold the girl you love. Blindfold her. Take her away. Don't kidnap her, guys. It's just, you know, make it a surprise. Go away for the weekend. Just relax. It's a wonderful marriage, I think, of lyric and and melody and music and the way that Bernard Edwards plays in a few places here. He's great. I mean, he's great overall, but great on Hearts and Bones. You hear what Nile Rodgers brings, and you definitely hear where he's sliding. And as Jeff said at the very beginning of this episode, it's, it's just so true. Paul Simon, you think of him, acoustic guitar, this, this, this. No, 
He's about rhythm. How do you how do you make these percussive elements uh, work together? How do you how do you create this sense of of rhythm? It will be most explicitly explored, of course, on Graceland, the next album. But it, it, it's it's happening here on Hearts and Bones. It's happening on Think Too Much. And they sat among our photographs, examined everyone. And in the end, we compromised and met the morning sun. Maybe I think too much. Maybe I think too much, oh Maybe I think too much Maybe I think too much, yeah Say the left side of the brain It dominates the right And the right side has to labor through I swear to God there's buying sheep on Think Too Much. The, the first one, A, uh, right at the beginning with the marimbas playing over it. I don't know if that's exactly what the sound is, but it sure sounds like that. But what I love the most about the second one is the way uh, B nails the delivery of that key line. She said, I had a childhood that was mercifully brief. I grew up in a state of disbelief. I started to think too much when I was 12 going on 13. Me and the girls from St. Augustine up in the mezzanine thinking about God. Yeah. I don't think they were thinking about God, actually. But uh, the, the sort of, you know, again, youthful escapades, uh, you know, getting away with, you know, like, you know, like, you know, snogging with girls in the church balcony. That, that's such a beautiful image, beautiful line. These were the songs, incidentally, that I think were supposed to be that he'd worked on with, with Art Garfunkel. And then he sort of repurposed, reclaimed for his own album. But again, I mean, I know Rory disagrees, but I think all of this is really good stuff. And so I, I guess I never understood why it was so hated. I grew up in a state of disbelief. I started to think too much when I was 12, going on 13. Me and girls from St. Augustine, up in the Mesopotamia. Think about God, yeah. Maybe I think too much. I do agree on some of the, I mean, I, I think think too much is the, the first thing too much is, is I really like, I don't know about the reprise with the typewriter sound and it mm -hmm. feels a little bit, but it is, it's got some good elements. It's got some, uh, some good songs. I just never really felt like it, it got all the way where, it, where it could have gone. So Scott, did your parents, Always get Graceland from the library on CD the way mine did. No, or was, was that kind? Of, I know because I know we've 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 commiserated yes. in the past about renting discs from the library. See, Jeff and I are the same age, but I think our parents are not. My my parents, um, had, my dad was twenty three when he had me, so okay, so a lot younger. Okay. Yeah, so around this era, they are they are not Paul Simon people. <laughs> they are not Graceland. There's a whole slew of albums. Uh, you know, I'm thinking like Steve Winwood, you know, uh, Eric Clapton's Journeyman. I think those sorts of albums that in this mid late eighties, a lot of people's parents were playing. My parents were a little too young for that. So we skipped Graceland completely. I don't even think it ever made an appearance in the house, except of course for the, you can call me Al video. Well, just to set the stage, this is the part where Paul Simon, uh, decides that 
he's actually a, a fan of apartheid and, and really believes in the city. No, I'm just kidding. No, uh, this is a huge controversy. And I guess we'll have to address some of the political issues here at some point. But what happened is I think he was going to produce a record for somebody he knew. He- he- this- Heidi Berg and introduced, Heidi- introduced to him by Lorne Michaels. Okay. You know, people always say like, oh, Paul Simon, he's a shady guy. You know, he steals credit from people. He's a dick in real life. I've heard some of these stories. And I don't credit too much. Of this is one thing that I can actually say is kind of a dick move. Yes. Because what did he do? So Heidi Berg gave him a tape of this like street music from like, you know, I think either Johannesburg, South Africa or something like that, where you know, these these great black musicians were playing this weird sort of incredible fusional music that isn't doesn't sound African or, you know, rock or anything like that. It incorporates accordion and crazy tribal rhythms. And she said, like, I want my album to sound like this tape. It's like this bootleg tape that somebody had made. So Paul Simon got obsessed with this tape and like played his card. He'd like like improvised melodies to it, and he said like I just want to use the songs on this tape. And then he said, okay, you know what? I'm going to use the musicians on this tape. And he turned around and he went to Heidi Berg and he said, but okay, you know that tape you but- gave me? I'm not going to produce your album, but my new album is going to be entirely based on the on the on the tape you gave me that you said I want my album to sound like this. And the funny thing is, she like the, the story is she kept calling him too. Like, uh, can I have my tape back? Uh, what's going on? Ah, no, you here? never can gave I, me original tape, tape, tape back. I don't know if he ever did. She 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 was calling for him. I mean, before he broke the news, he was not going to produce her album. She would be she would be calling him like, all right, let's let's move this thing forward. Oh. Uh, let's go. I'd like to well, hear she, my tape she again. She stalked him. She stalked him backstage at a concert to finally catch him. <laughs> and he was like, oh yeah, no, I'm not doing your album, but I am doing an album that's going to sound like this. <laughs> oh, so yeah. Kind of a genuine dick move there, especially because it was her idea. But would she have been able to come up with an album that sounds like Graceland? That's a really open question. I'm going to venture the answer to that question is no. Because this is an album that it's actually fashionable to hate now. Okay, The thing you want to talk about when you talk about Graceland is the way it sort of perpetuated a, a certain niche of American culture in the late 80s. And I was there, even though I was a young child, I was there for it. It is so hip these days to hate on it for, I guess, things that it came to epitomize. Namely, that sort of boomer, yuppie, faux, sophisticate affectation. Uh, the affectations that many of its most culturally visible fans in the 80s you know, wanted to have. I always think of, uh, this is gonna, you guys are going to laugh at this, but I always think of the Catherine O'Hara's family the one that buys Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis's house in the film Beetlejuice. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I always think of them as duly having a copy of Graceland on CD, <laughs> right next to their copy of Dire Straits as Brothers in yeah, Arms, and, yeah. and it's Sports by Huey Lewis. You know, like these are just sort of like their their consumption items that you put to have because it's what it's what all the right thinking people are buying these days, dear. Is it not? Don't let Graceland perish from that sort of cultural amber that it's encased in. This is a really vibrant, vivid, alive, joyful album. This is the only album of his that I had been familiar with prior to us doing this show. And I thought of it as just boomer music when I was, you know, starting up to re-listen to all of this stuff. I found myself just, you know, given all the things I had learned in the 30-something years under my belt in the meantime, about world beat music, about post-punk, about the you know, musical trends on the scene during the 80s. No, this thing still to this day it lives it breathes is it perfect it is not perfect 
but it is a really powerful album. It's a really great album, and I'm not going to be that contrarian that tries to tell you that Graceland sucks. Over the mountain, down in the valley, lives the former talk show host. Far and wide, his name was known. He said there's no doubt about it. It was the myth of fingerprints. That's why we must learn to live alone. like Shawshank Redemption where if I just listen to one song I have to listen to the whole album and it is it is easily one of the greatest complete albums of the last 40 or 50 years and I I think that he he got to it in some controversial ways and and we can talk about that but what he got to was just such a fantastic piece of art from the very first note on Boy in the Bubble to the end of the album, the whole thing works so well together. The music is so well delivered, so well organized. The rhythm is fantastic. You can literally listen to it with anybody and they're gonna get something out of it. He did it in this, like going back to that era, you're talking about competing with Michael Jackson and Madonna and Prince still. And he's putting out just this completely different world music, cultural clash. And it's like a dozen albums into his career. He's already produced so much great music. And he just comes out with his masterpiece. That's and- the greatest compliment I could pay to Ray Slam, by the way, is that it doesn't sound like the work of who somebody at this point in the business should have been an old man, a tired man, somebody right. who's seen it all and been it all. Yeah, this is this is like really just like vivid and vibrant music. It, it it has such energy. It doesn't feel like, it, as I said, it doesn't feel like yuppie old man music at all, really. It's a turnaround jump shot. It's everybody jump start. It's every generation throws a hero up the pop charts. Medicine is magical and magical is art. Think of the boy in the bubble and the baby with the babbling heart. And I believe these are days. Lasers in the jungle, lasers in the jungle somewhere. Staccato signals of constant information, a loose affiliation of millionaires and billionaires and babies. These are the days of miracle and wonder. This is the long distance call. The way the camera follows us in slow mo. The way we look to us all. That's dying in the corner of the sky These are the days of miracle Just from the boy in the bubble Right on track one again He's crushing it And he's getting a great intro into the album Makes you want to stay for the rest He gets into Graceland You know the, his, He's driving with his son to Graceland He's trying to get away from his marriage He's going to try to find some grace, trying to try to heal this deep wound. It's personal again, but it's still rooted in like, in what he's discovered down in South Africa. Um, 
like it, we could go through every one of these songs, but I mean, Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes, one of the greatest albums that he produced. The Lady Smith Black Bazo um, behind him, just pushing it. Um, like the na 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 na, like everything in it. You can call me out under African skies all the way down. That was your mother. It, it's just such a great album and. Uh, and and it sets up really the rest of his career, right? That everything he does at this from everything after this is kind of either a comparison or a facsimile of it. Well, it doesn't just set up his career in our in terms of critical comparisons. It sets up the rest of his career in terms of the way he's going to write songs from now on. Right. Because of course, what has to be said about this is that he he actually goes to South Africa. He hunted down. The members of this bootleg tape that was probably bought at some cassette stall of like street corner musicians, and you know he's very conscientious about this. He he, he like contacted uh, a record label executive uh, of his label in South Africa, and said like, "Hey, you've heard this. Uh, it took place at like this time and place on this street corner. Do you know who these guys might be?" And uh, they found out who it was, and so he found out who these people were. He went to South Africa. He actually taped this stuff there with a lot of these artists. And he did this in a very interesting way. What he would do is he tapes grooves. He asks the artist to just jam, you know, play on feels, on chords, on rhythmic ideas and things like that. And then only later do you build the track from those rhythm bass lines. This is kind of the way that Peter Gabriel, working you know, in isolation from Paul Simon, or Kate Bush for that matter, would also be assembling songs. And of course, what unites all three of these artists is that they, they really, even though they like working with other musicians, they're loners. And they really like to do that hermit thing where they assemble something themselves. So what Paul Simon starts writing like here is by finding grooves and feels and letting that dictate the music. I think he said like on this album, it's the bass line that writes all these songs mm -hmm. for him. That you know that kind of like underpinning the rhythm underpinning of these songs sort of dictates the melodic phrasing and the flow of the music. Scott, what were you going to say? I well, uh, Graceland is a miracle um, that it exists, that it's as good as it is. The number of things that had to come together for it to to, to happen. You know, Paul Simon had to be down on his luck a bit. I mean, I think Warner Brothers would have signed off on this idea if presented to them following, you know, a bunch of number one hits or trying to maintain chart success. Warner Brothers was like, well, do whatever you want. Go to Africa. What do we care? You, you sold uh, 15,000 copies of One Trick Pony. I don't Whatever. Go. go. Do what you want. And so he had this freedom uh, to, to explore what he wanted to do. And, and you know, digging into this, because yes, as Jeff mentioned to, as Jeff alluded to, you know, I think we're all sort of, especially recently, have heard more discussion of the cultural appropriation and did Paul Simon take advantage of these people and all of those questions. And the more you read about it, and I, I think Jeff agrees, and I don't know about Rory, you can jump in. He seems to have done things the absolute right way uh, in, in putting together Graceland. He goes to South Africa, he finds the actual people playing on that cassette, he invites them to play with him. He play, he pays them triple scale, like 200 bucks an hour uh, to play on this album. He gives them writing credits where appropriate. There are writers' royalties that are flowing through to some of the artists on this record. He gives massive credit to, uh, and I forgive forgive me for probably butchering his name, but uh, Bagithi Kumalo, who plays bass on essentially everything here. He, it is as much his album as it is Paul Simon's. You, you oh, yeah. can't, you can't fathom Graceland 
without those bass lines uh, and, and the way those grooves pour out. In early memory, mission music was ringing around my nursery door. I said, take this child, Lord, from Tucson, Arizona. Give her the wings to fly through harmony and she won't bother you no more. This is the story of how we begin to remember. This is the powerful pulsing of love and the vein. After the dream of falling and calling your name out. These are the roots of rhythm and the roots of rhythm remain. It's a miracle that, that, that the songs came together in the way that they did. Uh, this is, uh, I think Paul Simon alluded to, that this album is like a play. It has great flow from one song to the next. There are high points. There are low points. There are really groove-oriented moments. There are really song-oriented moments. And it all works together so well. And in 1986, there really aren't those 80s production ticks that doom so many efforts around this time. They're here, they're there, they're in corners. I think like Crazy Love probably suffers the most from, from those AD production ticks, and it's still okay. It still has this bright, shining melody. That's one of the right. uh, the, the only uh, Paul Simon writes, or o- only credited Paul Simon songs uh, on the album. I think I think maybe the I'd say the synth tones on You Can Call Me Al, a little bit 80s. Later on in the song, horns take over for the synths. But those synths are pretty cheesy. And that's about it, though. Yeah, it, everything else holds up very, very well. And, and Rory mentioned, uh, I, I think, you know, start to finish, it, it's it's like a play. Things flow together so well from one song to the other. You know, you're introduced to different things here and there on Homeless, Lady Smith, Black Mombazo. Uh, you Can Call Me Al has, you know, the, the penny whistle. I was, I, was not, I guess, surprised, um, although it makes sense. You know, Adrian Ballou plays all over this record. He plays uh, guitar and, and guitar synth on a ton of stuff, and he's from King Crimson and play with Talking Heads. And when you consider what this album is about and what it sounds like, well, yeah, of course, Adrian Ballou is going to be here. I, I just mentioned, you know, You Can Call Me Al, um, I, I I don't tire of it. I don't get sick of it. It is such a great groove. It is that bass part is just great. It is undeniable. Uh, the, the, the drum hits the, the that little the, bass the, breakdown. The, that yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, lyrically, it's this journey to sort of to, to find himself. It's almost a, a, a bio, not biographical, but sort of a narrative of the way the album came together, that he was able to to take this trip, this journey, and learn to love music again, both the, the construction of, the writing of, 
and and found these people that he had this experience with that he could share it with and create this amazing music. Um, it's a miracle. If a man walks down the street, it's a street in a strange world. Maybe it's the third world. Maybe it's his first time around. Doesn't speak language. He holds no currency. He is a foreign man. He is surrounded by the sound, the sound. Cattle in the marketplace. Scatterings and orphanages. He looks around, around. He sees angels in the architecture. Spinning in infinity. shot of redemption i don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard and of course like the little like the great vocalese bone digger bone digger and then in the background the backing vocals going ooh, ooh, that african you know understanding not only of you know melody and notes but microtonalities you know just getting get at the, the, at the weirdness and the elasticity the rubberiness of sounds but I love that lyric. There's, there, there's a sense of a certain kind of a normal person, a bit befuddled, a bit cynical, but a normal man's internal monologue as he negotiates the wildly foreign land. It's, it's so crystal clear in that line. A man walks down the street. It's a street in a strange world. Maybe it's the third world. Maybe it's his first time around. Doesn't speak the language. Holds no currency. He's a foreign man. He is surrounded by the sound. The sound. Just sounding like like lowing, like moves. The sound, the sound of cattle in the marketplace. It's just a great pattering of the lyrical idea to scansion, to the rhythm, to the beat of the of the music. Everything flows so well, and it's it, it's one of those things where you realize that Paul Simon always, even in his earliest phase of his solo career, was based around rhythm, but now. Because you know he finally like you know bit the bullet and took the trip to Africa. He's he's liberated. He's liberated to dance around the way he does on this album. I just you know, as one general point, I'll also say that this album uses African chant better than any world beat album ever made, in my opinion, including Peter Gabriel, who was like famous for like incorporating into so much of his music. The introduction to Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes is just amazing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Paul Simon, the old acapella folky harmony arranger, who's just deliriously happy at discovering this fantastic new way of harmonizing. She's a rich girl. She don't try to hide it. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. He's a poor boy, empty as a pocket. Empty as a pocket with nothing to lose. Sing ta na na, ta na na na. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes.
and he's, he can scat out melodies on top of. And then there's a song like Homeless, which is the entirety of Homeless. And you think, well, what does this actually have to do with the music of Paul Simon? Because he, he's barely even a presence on it. He's just this wispy voice occasionally in the background, it seems like. But does it matter? This is stunningly beautiful music regardless. And I almost like the fact that he's willing to step away, step back from the spotlight in the center and just hand it over to these amazing musicians. And then, uh, yeah, as, as, as Rory said, this incredibly warm and inviting sound that really does sort of compel you to want to listen to the whole thing at once. So I, 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 he goes there kind of impatiently, right? Like he want, he wants to, as soon as he, gets hooked into this he wants it right now but he tries to do all the right things you know he, the un doesn't want him to go some groups don't want him to go he's getting death threats in south africa but he's going to you know harry belafonte and quincy jones and he's asking them like how do i do this the right way and he goes down there and he gives these guys you know i think their their their, their rate in south africa would be like 15 bucks an hour he gives them 200 bucks an hour He's flying him around first class and putting him in five-star hotels when he brings him to New York. He's doing everything he can, but he's also at the same time recognizing what an awful situation apartheid is by being there and watching his musicians have to leave at five o'clock because if they're out on the streets at dark, they're going to get arrested or have to show papers. And so he's incorporating just that experience as well. I think that the cultural appropriation thing is something that can be, I mean, listen, like the Beatles have to take it on Chuck Berry and everywhere you see in rock and roll, there's people borrowing from people from other people who should probably be more recognized. But the result here is like, is, is not appropriation, but this true partnership that goes on for probably the rest of his career, that, that real bond. And they, they really, the artists that he works with were really, um, really thought highly of Paul. You know, yeah. You ask you, people say like, "Do these people taking advantage of?" Like, we don't have to wonder. You know, you can ask them; they're more than happy to tell you. No, we we were treated incredibly fairly. This is the most wonderful thing that ever happened to us. Yeah, I mean, and they're happy that the music is out there, and they're happy that people and that it brought attention to Africa, and they like that it, they like the that that people are grooving to their sounds and. They, they tour with him for years. I think, um, you know, on, on You Can Call Me Out, which is probably the, the, the least African of the songs, you've got, like, his midlife crisis, like, where's my wife and family? What if I die here? Who will be my role model? And it's also a really funny song in the sense that he needed MTV to kind of break this album open the same way that, current artists did then and it the, the album doesn't really take off until that video the album doesn't take off until like one of the most you know legendarily irascible people in the music industry teams up with one of the most legendarily unlikable people in the entertainment industry right. which is paul simon and chevy chase the, but, the but they small did man and the tall man they did it because um, lorne michaels told them to and everyone respects lorne michaels you know what? Lauren knew what he was doing. He understood the 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 absolute beauty of just seeing the contrast between those those two physical frames. And and listen, give Simon credit, man. He mugs it up for the camera. Chevy Chase, he's a pro, right? Paul Simon, though, I love it when he like breaks down to play like the bass line. You know, he's obviously he doesn't have those chops. 
Uh, but but yeah, he he fakes it really well. He fakes it like the way you play air guitar in the bathroom mirror, and that's what I think is really fun about that. Well, and and you can't you can't actually play that baseline. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a studio creation. It's impossible. Um, it's also you know I going back to the New Orleans thing for a second. It really does kind of end in a carnival way with that was your mother and all around the world or the myth of fingerprints. And, you know, I think I, it, it reminded me of like, this was also like one of those albums where I met my wife's parents and it's like, you're kind of, my wife's from Lafayette and we're, we're, we're kind of like feeling each other out. And then like you put Graceland on and everyone's like, Oh, I love this album. Oh, I love this album. And it's, and everybody just relaxes a and, bit. Like, you know, we can all relate. Right. And it is, uh, you, that was your mother's like just straight up Zydeco. It's got that, like those Cajun girl lines. It, it's, it's why like the city of New Orleans really loves them. Along come a young girl. She's pretty as a prayer book. Sweet as an apple on Christmas day. I said, good gracious, can this be my luck? If that's my prayer book, Lord, let us pray. You know, post Katrina, if you ever see, like, he did a, a jazz fest set and with Bridge Over Troubled Water with Alan Toussaint. Um, and it like brought like the entire city to tears. Like it's this, he's got this relationship with South Africa throughout this whole album, but it also kind of ends with his relationship with Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, that's you, you can call me out as new Orleans and it's not, it's not Africa. And that's right. all. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, and the Boyoyo boys, the original, the group that originally brought gumboots to, I mean, he literally puts the song gumboots on that's their song. And he just kind of adds a little of his flourish and his horn section and his like Mardi Gras feel to it. And it's um, under the entire, the entire reason Graceland exists is because that song Gumboots was on the tape that Heidi Berg gave him and he just wanted to buy the song from them. So yeah. that was why he, he, he told like his managers, like, we got to contact the, the artists on this so I can pay them their royalties. And if it wasn't for that song, Graceland wouldn't exist because he went on from that to decide it's like, well, maybe I'll just record with them instead. Yeah. And, and we do, you know, there, the other controversies here are obviously, you know, like uh, Los Lobos thinking that they ripped, that he ripped them off rock and Doopsy thinking he ripped them off. But you, you look at the rest of the record and it pretty, I mean, the guy's giving producing and songwriting credits all over it. Yeah. Uh, okay. so this is a controversy that I feel like, I guess we kind of have to briefly address. I think Paul Simon is in the right here. Um, I, I the, the claim, by, you know, the guy in Los Lobos says, like, you know, Myth of Fingerprints, the last song on the album, he jammed it out with them. He says, well, you know, Paul Simon came to the sessions and he didn't have any pre-written music. He just said, you know, jam, okay, playing A, playing G. And, uh, you know, and then we did, and we deserve writing credit for that. But, but, but saying to jam and, you know, pulling out a few chords is the equivalent of hitting the mix blending on, the mix setting on a blender, okay? Any artist, any band can do that. What Simon did, and this is, of course, the way he was writing songs at the time, is just took like, you know, who knows, 20 minutes long, uh, 20 minutes worth of tape and edit, reorganize, repurpose, duck certain tracks, rise certain other tracks, and then write a melody over it on top of it. 
So he was just basically say it was the equivalent of like what James Brown tells his backing band. He is like, you know, put the groove on, gee, you know, and like they're not writing music; they're just falling back on basic instincts that every working musician has. So I'm going to defend Simon on that while also simultaneously pointing out that he treated them the way he would just normally handle business with any other American musician, and he treated those South African musicians far, far more carefully and mm-hmm. generously because he was not a stupid man. He understood even just recording with South African musicians in South Africa. I'm treading on a lot of political toes. I'm going to make sure that there's no one on the planet that can fault me for the way that I handled myself here. And he really did. I think he, he handled it really well. Um, what I'm not as certain that he handled well was the follow-up to Graceland. And before we move on to that, does anybody have any final thoughts on this? No, let's move. Nope. Yep. Well, the Rhythm of the Saints, I will say it is the number one conga playing album of 1990, okay? <laughs> that much, I will grant it. I do not dislike this album, but I will say that when you open with a song called The Obvious Child and it's the obvious hit single, you're writing a little bit too on the nose. <laughs> um, it, it's the obvious one. This is more like, this is very pleasant and uncontroversial music. It's Graceland warmed over. It has all of the pleasant rhythmic vibes of Graceland with none of the sort of interesting high points. Sonny gets married and moves away. Sonny has a baby and bills to pay. Sonny gets sunny a day by day by day by day. Well, I've been waking up at sunrise. I've been following the light across my room. I watch the night proceed of my day. Some people say the sky is just the sky, but I say, why deny the obvious job? Why deny the obvious job? I think it's terrible. Uh, you really think it's terrible? Okay, I, go with it. I would prefer to pretend that the entire 1990s didn't exist uh, for Paul Simon. Maybe he would I'll, too. I'll right? give you. I'll give you the rest. But I think this is this has got some things. Now, I, I I I think where where on Graceland those rhythm tracks that were recorded, um, j- just set the table for these songs. What I feel because these are these are not these are South American percussion tracks in Brazil. Again, I, I think I'm pretty sure he goes to, he goes to Brazil. He gets the musicians. They play the, the the tracks, and then and then they go to to sort of he goes to you know write the lyrics and put these songs together. Whereas whereas those drum tracks on Graceland set everything in motion to make a successful album. I listen to Rhythm of the Saints and I hear these drum tracks, these percussion tracks holding everything back it, it, it they're, they're hedging huh. him in they're locking him into these these patterns that he can't escape from and uh th- i don't think there's a, I th- you mentioned this Jeff. there's not a great ebb and flow to this record there are no real high points these songs really never turn the engine over they, they never get going um I, I I think that um, I just wrote I think a few it's things telling down you the here. Best, the best song on this album for me is a very weird, arty, experimental number. What do you There's like? Just, 
uh, I'd say it's it's can't run but okay that's it's my that's my favorite best. song on the album too and there we go See, so we we do have line. some consensus here yeah I think can't right. run but is this you know it's a slinky thing that works well and then oh, man there's just it, it to my ears it's so repetitious it's boring, it's, it's monochromatic again where the, the the rhythm tracks on Graceland really opened up worlds for Paul Simon and the way he wrote those songs I just feel. That by doing it in, in the same way, getting those those percussion tracks first, the South American Brazilian percussion tracks, hemmed him in, and he couldn't escape. He couldn't write his way out of what those percussion tracks gave him, and uh, I, I really think it's a total failure. a little bit more forgiving than you two are I, I i think that i really like the obvious child i think that the song really works i think it's to the point i've made now in every album it it you know it's the obvious child because it's track one and he's gonna put track one as something that really pulls you in and it's got that earworm the percussion that sounds like hand clapping but it's drums and the volume and the intensity of the drums keeps changing and moving the song along and it gets that snare heavy. I just like it. I like the horns and the vocals. Um, the rest of the album just fades away from that. Unfortunately, I right. think, I think can't run, but is I, I, I agree with you it, that guys where on that song, it's also though makes me feel like I'm watching like an eighties movie thriller, like the man with one red shoe. <laughs> Like, like something is like we're watching some person like commit a crime in an airport. But okay, Rory, the reason you think that though is because of that rhythm track, and this is what I love about it. I think it's an absolutely transcendent rhythm track, the single most perfectly teeming, alive track of his career. Like bugs crawling all over something. Like the speed with which some of those bongo fills are being played, maybe it's a conga, I'm not sure, is so preternaturally fast that I actually wonder if it's a sampler playing loops, or if it's not a human. Because if it's a human being, it's a massive feat of physical percussive skill. So, like, to me, just, you know, that, 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 and again, it gives you that thriller vibe, right? There's just incredibly fast percussive beats on it. I find it to be really impressive. Yeah, I mean, you also you get a little bit of that with the coast too. It, it, the coast kind of starts to make me feel like it's something that, like a jam band, like widespread could cover and make better. <laughs> like, it, it it it's then the rest of the album just really fades away. Like it it just never really gets back on track, and and every song kind of you want it to get off the ground, and it just kind of doesn't. They're all just stuck on the runway. To prove that I love you because I believe in you. 
summer sky stars are falling all along the Indian coast. And if I have money, if I have children, summer sky stars are falling all along the Indian coast. Sing, wah Summer skies, the stars are falling all along the Indian coast. Summer skies, the stars are falling. Yeah, it, it, it's oh gosh, this is really damning it with the worst of faint praise. It's got a bit of a Muzak vibe. But music is music for a reason, which is that you never really feel offended by it while it's on. It's just always sort of pleasant burbling there in the background. And that's the way I feel about a huge amount of the rhythm of the Saints. Uh, I do not feel that way about the next two albums of his career. Uh, uh, who wants to spend uh, 30 seconds talking about the best album Paul Simon ever put out, Songs from the Cape Man? It, it's, it's, abs- it's, it's the weirdest, worst album it somehow instead of even reviewing it rory can you explain it what the hell was this supposed to be imagine a collaboration with mark anthony but you do (laughs) doo-wop that's what this album is it's bizarre the 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 writing is weird he gets really he starts cursing a lot which is kind of out of there every song starts with like this bizarre speaking intro it's 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 bad all around. I I wanted one song on here to work and it just doesn't. Scott and I talked about on our Patreon only episode just the other day about how weird and discomforting it is. Neither of us really care if somebody curses in a song, right? I mean, listen to me. I'll, I'll listen to like Iggy Pop till the day is long. Or I do not care hip hop. But it's weird when an artist who never uses vulgarity or profanity. Right. Suddenly, just starts dropping f bombs and you know, <laughs> at, and the s, you know, you know, saying shit and then stuff like that in, in the songs. Like, even if they're playing a voice, it's weird. It would be like hearing Kate Bush say Fuck. like that's that's wrong. No, nobody wants that. That's not right. No. Similarly, hearing Paul Simon, even though it's in the voices of these characters, this is. For people who don't know, this is supposed to be like a semi-soundtrack to a Broadway play. The play is bad. The album is worse. And yeah, nobody wants to hear Paul Simon cursing. You're the one, the next album. The best thing I can say about it is that it was the next album. It wasn't Kate Man. By the way, Scott, I know Kate Man was your favorite. You kept saying no, in the show notes no. how you had a big defense Please. of it. You wanted a mount. No, I did not. Uh, no, 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 no. Well, are, need... are you pretending that you didn't do that? I do not need Paul Simon swearing at me to set to Puerto Rican rhythms. It, again, it, <laughs> it is far better to pretend that nothing in the 90s happened. Oh, the West Simon. Side storyisms of it just make me want. It's a story about like a real life story about like a. I think like, like a Puerto Rican kid who it's just, like, it's accidentally just weird. Someone. You know, to your point, Jeff, if, if you knew someone in your life like Paul Simon and all of a sudden he started just spouting profanities, like you you'd ask him if everything was okay. Like that's it's so uncomfortable. You don't no one no one's it's not a comfortable listen in any way, shape, or form. It, 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 it's also, by the way, you feel like you're in Havana, not Puerto Rico. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Because his his idea of Puerto Rico, which is weird because he grew up in new york but yeah it does sound like miami <laughs> in a weird right. Way. Right. 
I don't know, but yes, we we can ignore that. I'd actually also like to ignore the fallen one, which which a lot of people like more. Uh, but I think is equally as bad, but just in different ways, which is you're the one. Now, Rory, you were talking about this. You said the best thing you can say about it is that it's not Kate, man. This is the nadir of Paul Simon's face. Does anybody have any thoughts about this one? Because I actually, this is as bad as it gets. I think it gets much better very quickly. I don't think it's bad. Um, I don't think it's great. I, I think at this point, he is essentially, uh, look, there are some things coming up which will... Uh, um, which will surprise us, uh, pun intended. Uh, you're the one is, is essentially a, you know, a very back-to-basic sort of, oh, this is what you would expect from Paul Simon. They're, you're the one, the title track was uh, was one that they played in uh, Chicago on XRT, and so I heard that often. Um, and I, I think this is, it's a very front-loaded album. I'll absolutely give you that. I think most of the great songs or the good songs are, are toward the front. Simon talked a lot around this time about trying to operate in this new media universe in which attention spans are short. He's like, you've got to make something that's more immediate. You've got to make something that's more accessible in like this low-attention age. And I think the first what four or five tracks are not that bad. That's where I belong. Very simple, directing and kind of classic Simon sound. Uh, old is an attempt to, to sort of poke fun at himself for getting, I guess at that point he was 60, he's turning 60 at that point. Uh, I think the title track is okay. Back half is not great. Pig, Sheep, and Wolf's not good. Uh, uh, there are a few songs in the back half that I would prefer not to, uh, to discuss. Yeah, tellingly, he re- he chose a lot of those to re-record when yeah. he did his little re-recording album. But I, I don't think, I mean, as I said, I think there are three total disasters. Cape Man, and I think I think she, uh, I was going to say she's the one. That's a Tom Petty album. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're the one is better than uh, the one-trick pony. I, I don't think it's near the, I don't think it's scraping the bottom by any means. You're the one, you broke my heart, you made me cry. We've reached the bottom, and now he starts climbing back up in, 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 into his later years. Well, I think I might be the one who's out on an island here, uh, or at least disagrees somewhat with the rest of you, when I think that the 2006, so four years past, 2006, he, this guy just won't quit. He just really does want to release an album every three or four years or so. And he calls this one surprise. It was a goddamn surprise. All right, this is coming off as another Simon and Garfunkel reunion tour. Predictably, there will be no reunion with Art Garfunkel. No, instead, there is a new collaborator. Who is our collaborator? Oh, he's a man who's entered the political beats story so many, many times. Although he's never had a show of his own yet. That's Brian Eno. Brian Eno and Paul Simon. I never knew that this collaboration even happened until last week. It seems so wrong. The thought of Paul Simon collaborating with Brian Eno, just 
that makes no sense, doesn't it? These are like two people whose music, you know, while white and Western, just couldn't be more different from one another in any way. Art rock versus the the, the weird Eno-esque, you know, the weird Eno-esque conceptual, like, you know, ambient stuff, beds and sheets of sounds, and also modern pop production versus Paul Simon's acoustic-based stuff. I think Surprise is a really great album. He updates his sound, but he doesn't do it obnoxiously. The electric guitars and the more modern beats don't sound out of place precisely because, you know, one of his compositional styles from Graceland onwards has been to weave melodies and acoustic guitar lines over these basic grooves, and it works incredibly well right on that first song, How Can You Live in the Northeast, where he basically apologizes for people for living in, like, New Canaan, Connecticut, or Montauk, uh, as opposed to Los Angeles, where everyone expects him to end up, or Miami. It's like, yeah, you know, if you ask me how I, you, I can live in the Northeast, I'll ask you how you can live in the South. I know, Scott, you consider it to be a disappointment. You think it should have been so much better than it was. I think it's exactly as good as it should have been, and this was actually a, a really pleasant surprise for me. I think it could have been better than it was. Um, I, I think the partnership works as well as you might expect. Um, I, I think actually, I, I don't think it's so crazy that they'd want to work together. Uh, both have this 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 interest in world music, and and even with. You know, sort of sheets of sound. Right. There's always a keen rhythmic sense, which clearly is a, important to Paul Simon and his music. I think largely, and I know there, there's one that you might talk about here in a, in a minute, Jeff, that you love. I, I think largely, though, the songs are just a little weak to pull off what they wanted to do. The songs are more unmemorable than some others uh, in Paul Simon's past. I think the melodies are a bit weak. Um, I think Eno does what he can to sort of pull uh, pull these songs out of Simon. And the best I think it's moments, the other way around. I feel like yeah. they wrote them the other way around. I feel like that the, the rhythm beds were there, and then Simon took these grooves and then wrote melodies. You know, So I guess not knowing the actual process, we disagree for reasons that could be known. Like right. if, if it's the way that you account for it, well, then you, you're right. Uh, Once Upon a Time, There Was an Ocean. I think that's the best track on, on Surprise. It's the best example in my mind of what what could have been, uh, what could have been a bit better in many places on the album. I, I really love those uh, just sort of bounces on this percussive riff and then and then springs into this acoustic, there's a steady drum beat throughout. Um, the one song that has no Eno on it whatsoever here is one that people might know. It was on a bunch of commercials back in the day. It was in a movie called The Wild Thornberries Movie for kids called Father and Daughter. Um, 
if you even if you don't think you know it, I think you probably do. Um, that's the most. It's the most Paul Simon song I think in years and years, and one of the better Paul Simon songs. In See, I think it's years. the weakest song on the record, oh, precisely wow. because it's wow. the most Paul Simon-like but, song. Yeah, I mean, it's there's there's no Eno on it whatsoever. So I guess if you love surprise like you do, I understand why father and daughter would sort of stick out like a sore thumb. I'm gonna stand guard like a postcard of a golden retriever, and never leave till I leave you with a sweet. I'm gonna watch you shine, gonna watch you grow, gonna paint a sign so you'll always know. As long as one and one is two, there could never be a father loved his daughter more than I love you. I love the theme of that song. I mean, I think it's yeah. a beautiful theme. I just think you're right that it does sound like much more trad, and this is like to me like an attempt at an evolution that works. There's a song on here called I mean, there's some stuff that doesn't work. Like so, like it was like sure don't feel like love. Oh, you know the hip hop rhythm actually kind of points up, you know, the, the weakness of the song because that rhythmic repetition isn't saved by any kind of like truly memorable melody or even a lyric. But then you have something like beautiful. Okay, you read a song called "Beautiful." I was, I was just, I was just talking about this on Twitter, like before we taped. I was like, "You damn well better have a chorus that is beautiful, because you're already setting expectations by the title alone." And that chorus, where Simon just coos the line "Beautiful," it's it's really memorable. And then that final verse, the lyrical conceit of the song is about adopting children with disabilities you know, from third world countries, war-torn countries or whatever, uh, and saying that you love them for who they are, you know, doesn't matter that they, you know, they were rejected by their parents. It doesn't matter that they might be blind or, you know, you know, have, you know, some sort of, you know, genetic disease. It doesn't matter because this is a beautiful angel. And so there's that final verse where, like, the baby from Kosovo and his eyes are blind, and there's that throbbing, run like hell rhythm guitar playing in the background. It's just gorgeous. And it's such a gorgeous sentiment as well. I really love that song. I think that song goes a long way for me in kind of like, you know, elevating my feeling about the entire album as a whole. Snowman sitting in the sun doesn't have time to waste. He had a little bit too much fun. Now his head's erased. Back in the house, family of three, two doing laundry and one in the nursery. We brought a brand new baby back from Bangladesh. Thought we'd name her Emily. She's beautiful. I like this album. I think it's a good recovery. I think that it's it's. I think the part of it that I like is that he's back to being pretty smart about some of his decisions. <clears throat> um, I also, and I and I mean this in a not in a bad way. It kind of reminds me a little bit of 
where Paul McCartney started doing some of the same, you know, intelligent choices in his later career. And I, and so I think that there are some really good songs. I think that there are some songs that are not that great. You will never be, by the way, in bad company mentioning Paul McCartney around the political beats family. We like him a lot here. I know. <laughs> Every, I, I think everything about it, it's a lovely love song. I like the guitar and snare work on it. Um, I, I think on Outrageous, you he reminds you that he's just a really strong guitar player. That That the song isn't really, I think, great, but his guitar work on it is exceptional. Um, sure there's a float. There's a float to the way that he plays both the acoustic and then later electric guitar on that right. song. He just sort of like hovers above, and then there's that little like, "Who you gonna love when your looks are? Who's gonna love you when your looks are gone?" And it, it, it really downbeat mantra, but it becomes like a chant, like a mantra by the end of it. It's outrageous the food they try to serve in the public school. Outrageous the way to talk to you like it's some kind of clinical fool. It's a blessing to rest my head in the circle of your love. It's outrageous I can't stop thinking about the things I'm thinking of, and I'm tired. 900 sit-ups a day I'm pinning my hair The color of mud and mud, okay I'm tired, tired Anybody care what I say? No, pinning my hair The color of mud Who's gonna love you when you look so gone? Tell me who's gonna love you when you look so gone Oh, who's gonna love you when you look so gone? I agree with you. I think Beautiful is probably the best song on this album. It's really nice. I think the most interesting thing for me on it is really his vocals because like it, saying something is beautiful in music, everybody does it. It's very hard to with one word and the way you vocally use it to immediately let the listener know you're talking about a sweet child. Yeah. And that you're not talking about a girl or somebody that you just saw or or the you're talking about a sweet child and he gets it done in one word one word and just like the way his voice floats through those notes conveys sort of like the vulnerability of that precious little nugget you know and that's i don't know again you know I, I, knowing paul simon he probably agonized every single note of that line to get it right yeah it, I think on Once Upon a Time, you get that Simon trademark of you start listening to one song and then it becomes a different song and then it becomes the other song again. And um, and I like it. It, it. But again, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grading him against himself, which is a hard measure. Found a room in the heart of the city down by the bridge. Hot plate and TV and beer in the fridge. But I'm easy. I'm open. That's my gift, I can Draw with the traffic, I can Drift with the drift yeah. Home again, no Never gone home again Think about home again I never think about home But then comes a letter from home The handwriting is fragile and strange Something unstoppable set into motion Nothing is different, but everything has changed. Father and daughter, I think it, you know, 
I've got two daughters. It just gives it extra credit. Um, it's, it's a, it's a good song. It means a lot more to you when you kind of feel Hello? what, what he's singing to. This is also part of an era where we're waiting longer and longer between Paul Simon albums. What special or a surprise was 2006 and his next one pops up in 2011. It's called So Beautiful or So What? And I think Rory agrees with me that of these later era Paul Simon records, I, I, I think I would argue this is his best. And there's a few reasons. He reunites with Phil Ramone, who did some producing with him back in, in the 70s. He produced, he produced the concert in New York City. Phil Ramone, by the way, for, for, for you folks, better known as Billy Joel's right-hand man. Right, right. So he knows the sound, certainly. And uh, this record is, is concise. It is tight. It's 38 minutes in the CD era. Unheard of. Thank um, God, boy, I respect that. So yes, much. yes. And uh, I think this does a really good job of blending uh, a lot of the work that Simon had been doing over the past, what, 20, 25 years. You, you, you have him reaching back to some of the very simple, direct songwriting methods he was using early on. But there are also these really interesting rhythms. There are some digital loops. There's a handful of very delicate acoustic songs and some, you know, some busier songs. Uh, I want to say experimental to go along with Paul Simon's name. But there are some songs that are a little less Paul Simon-esque on this album. Um, and there's some really high points. I think Love is Eternal, Sacred Light is probably the best song on, on the album. The title track where... For the most part, it's stripped back to just vocals and guitar with, again, some interesting production elements. It shows that he is still he's still really powerful. His voice is still powerful. The combination of acoustic guitar and Paul Simon's voice is still very good. So beautiful. A coin dropped in a slot I am an empty house on Weed Street Across the road from the vacant lot You know life is what you make of it So beautiful or so what Love and blessings He's grown, he's, you know, he's grown into his voice Yeah his voice felt like a little weird and maybe kind of comical and sad coming out of like a 23-year-old man. But when he's an old guy, you know, that kind of approach as, you know, an old reflective man who's seen the world, it makes so much more sense. So he was just waiting to grow into his voice all these years, <laughs> in my opinion. And look, the first track, Getting Ready for Christmas Day, that's just fun. That's a great song interspersed with, uh, with the preaching from the 1940s. It's uh, it's really well constructed. I I think this is again the best album, the the most, uh, uh most accessible, uh, the, the 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 best Paul Simon album late in his career. I I mean, but I won't put out dazzling blue. Yeah, yeah, I that's the other one I marked here. Yep. Silence is revealing 
sky A hidden mound of stone But the cat's scans eye Sees what the heart's concealing Nowadays When everything is known Maybe love's an accident Where destiny is true But you and I were born beneath a star of dazzling blue Dazzling blue It's a dazzling musical background for that song. I, um, again, I have to say that uh, for somebody who I came, you know, I came to him with no prior background knowledge, this is the era where you just expect cringe moment after cringe moment and even if we disagree like you might say oh it's passable oh it's good it's not great but but what's kind of surprising to me is that paul simon never made a you know he his cringe moments actually all came during his heyday yeah with with one trick pony rhythm of the saints but his later career has been very nice there are no quality control issues here there is nothing that you would even sniff embarrassment on right It, it, it is all well done it may not grab you the way the early stuff did. Some of it might might be a little more background noise than you might want from Paul. But there's nothing embarrassing here, and he's still able to hit some high moments on all of these records. Right, Rory? Yeah, Scott. I mean, I agree with I agree with Scott's assessment. I think that this this album is really well constructed. I think that he does it smart from start to finish. It's not obviously. It's not. Graceland, but it is a start to finish album that you can listen to. And the album flows well. It's got um, some great tracks. I think I, I like Rewrite a lot. I think it's uh, one of his That's better. That's the best song on the album. Buddy. Yeah. I mean, it's one of his best late career songs for, by far. acoustic guitar i don't want you what you call it that symphony of, during the instrumental break before the final chorus like all this this rhythmic thrumming that goes on with all the various notes and i've got to think there are like three at least guitars playing simultaneously uh gives proof that you know what is he 70 at this point is like he's not quitting in terms of trying to come up with weird and interesting ways to use his guitar to make music yeah i mean and even just the, 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 I said, help me, help me. I mean, like that refrain is, is like indicative of his earlier era. Like it is him nailing a, 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 some lyrics. I think that he, and, and the whistling too, like he gets back to the whistling. <laughs> the, the afterlife, I think, or afterlife, the accordion stomp beat is like also a nice reprisal for him, kind of bringing back a little bit of that. I like love in hard times, that soft piano intro. It's got it's kind of optimistic. 
And honestly, if you look at like a lot of the bad out or maybe not, you know, the albums that were less than favorably reviewed here, a lot of them are, you know, he's being pessimistic. And on this album, he's really being optimistic. Like he's trying to like give nicer messages out to the world. Or he was criticized for this. Would you believe that? People were actually like getting on Paul Simon. It's like he's writing all these things about like how nice family and faith are, and like and people were like, "Well, they know that's not the Paul Simon that I knew." <laughs> Which I think <laughs> was like funny. It's like no, he's actually like you know he's 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 mellowed. I guess in the very real sense of that term, he's actually mellowed out with age. Well, well, you know, he's married to Edie Brickell. He's got three kids. They're they 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 live a private like family life. And that's what he's writing about. He's writing about things in his life being put together and good for him. Yeah. And I guess that takes us to, I mean, I don't want to call it his last solo album today. Cause there's one that follows up, which is just kind of his own version of Kate Bush's director's cut where he re-records old songs. But the last album of new material today, at least is stranger to stranger from right before the beginning of the Trump era. Uh, that would be 2016 summer of 2016. Yeah, Paul Simon was releasing new music that recently, as recently as Trump winning the Republican nomination, which to me feels like kind of like a year zero reset for my life. Um, this one is one where he brings in a lot of like interesting sort of more modern instrumentation and stuff like that, which I, again, do not have a problem with it. I'm constantly impressed by the taste with which Simon and his producer, Roy Halley, I assume plays a role in this. Um, they they bring in like sounds and and noises and they never embarrass themselves except as i said with strings those 70 strings always sucked but this is his most recent one to date and, you know as we wrap up here i wanted to to get rory your thoughts first on what do you think of paul simon in the present day you know i i, I like it because it actually feels like it's in the present day like it doesn't feel like he's doing something that is a throwback uh, you know, like uh, the most popular song that came out of it was wristband. I think that that is accessible for across generations. I mean, it, he starts off talking about having a smoke outside and checking his phone gets locked <laughs> out. I mean, like that's something that I can relate. everybody can relate to that. Uh, you know, you're standing outside, you're ha looking at your phone, you get locked out. But it's really a song about inequality. It's got like these great bass lines. And, you know, you could turn on Sirius Spectrum and hear it. You got to have a wristband. You don't have a wristband. You don't get through the door. And I said, wristband? I don't need a wristband. My axe is on the bandstand. My band is on the floor. I mean, it's just It's, it's 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 it allows him to kind of re-enter the conversation i think insomniac's lullaby um is good i think he's got some songs on here that aren't that i don't really love werewolf um but it's a uh, as far as winding down your solo career goes assuming that he's not putting on another album next year it's 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 good 
Scott? I listened to uh, this one, and I, I, I have to admit, and this I listened to the, the last uh, you know four or five albums essentially in, in, in one sitting, and I do have to admit that by the time I got to this one, I was a little, um, I don't know, I, I ended up putting it on and just trying to find the songs that were really jumping out, that really sort right. of broke away from the rest of Stranger to Stranger, and there were a few. Um, in a Parade is really weird and different, yeah. and I like it a lot. Um, there's one called The Riverbank toward the tail end yes. of the album that's very with good. With Jack DeJohnette, who's yeah. one of the great jazz drummers, yes. played with Miles Davis on Bitches Brew, among other things. Is there any reason why the black pine should not weep? Is there a woman or a man who wouldn't understand why he could not sleep? And the nightmares when they came like poison to the brain reminded him again life is cheap. Army dude, only son, nowhere to run. No one to turn to, he turns to the guns across the stones, a fragment of bones, a long walk home. I think both of those songs are really good. And I don't know if you guys got the same feeling that I did, but listening to Insomniac's Lullaby, which is the very last song on this album, it seems to me maybe he's kind of pulling a Billy Joel in writing the last yeah. song he knows he'll ever write and putting it as the last song on the last you know studio album he knows he'll ever release. Yeah, it's a famous last words movie. Absolutely. Yeah, right. That that song is is absolutely at a uh, I want to say at a temp to not summarize his life, but it's certainly you know it's it's an ending. You can listen to that song and and hear oh that's an ending. This is the way that Paul Simon wishes to sort of conclude his final effort, uh, and that's definitely what that sounds like to me. It's a fine album. Some highlights again, much like the most of the the the, the end of his career here. Yeah. So. I mean and, and I, know, I don't know if you want to cover in the blue light or not, but I'll just say, I, I think that to that point of the final word, I wish that every artist went back and redid some songs at the end. Just this, I mean, it's a fun experience. This is the second artist we've covered in a row that did this, Rory. And this is purely accidental, of course, but Kate Bush, uh, who we did in our last episode, you know, she, of course, famously is like a recluse and doesn't release anything. And then all of a sudden we'll just like, you know, like David Bowie did during the last part of his career, like, boom, here's a new album. Well, she did it recently, and it was just re-recordings of old songs, remixes in some cases, because she wasn't satisfied with the way that they originally came out. Well, that's what Paul Simon does here. Um, uh, he just takes, going all the way back to, geez, like Ryman Simon, 73, just takes songs from each of those records and says, you know, I could have done better, and redoes them, each of them. And actually, this could be a disaster, I'm not going to say it's like a masterpiece or even a great record, but actually these remakes are worthy. They're not appalling. They're not terrible. I, in some cases, usually the older the song, the less impressed I am with the remake. But I actually do like these these versions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually like some of the older versions better. I just love the idea that he did it. Yeah. Um, I mean, like One Man's Ceiling, I like the first version better. 
like the one man ceiling is like kind of like your like the the piano player in a bar song like it's a, it's a teleplay in its original version yeah he's like yeah. Shouting, almost shouting over the crowd so they can hear him exactly and and now it's like a little bit on you know it's a little too polished up but um you know he gets he gets marsalis in there he's he's getting a i think some of the mixes are really nice but more than anything i just i just like the idea of him doing it Scott, I know this one, again, you gave a lot of listens to this one. I, in fact, did not. <laughs> have nothing to say about this one. Well, then I guess that brings us to the end. And, of course, Paul Simon is still making music. It seems likely, given our timing here. So when did In the Blue Light come out? Was that like 2017, I think? 2018, I think. Um, yeah. So I, that means that we're pretty much due. This year, next year, there will probably be a new one. And it will be surprisingly competent. Now he's well, he, I mean, he did retire I, I, from touring. Yeah, yeah. I was I was fortunate to go to some of his last shows, and and it, you could very much tell that the writing was on the wall that he was moving on. So I don't know if we'll get another one. So well, then I'm glad because you know we've had some unfortunate situations where we recorded what we thought was the definitive political beats episode, and then you know that damn artist just goes and releases another great album. But we have we. We're not going to deal with that here. Anyway, Scott, I guess that brings us to the end. Yes, indeed. We come to the part of the show where we give you our two albums that you must own, the five uh, two essential albums, the five songs you must hear from our artist, Paul Simon. Rory Cooper is our guest. Find him on Twitter at Rory Cooper. Rory, your two albums, your five songs, please. I mean, I, I would love to go against the grain and, and try to pick a song that everyone's not already thinking of, but I just feel like Paul Simon's are kind of obvious to me for, and, and also by the way, and the albums, you have to cheat. The The third album is S S Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits. If, if you don't listen to that, <laughs> you, you miss something. So let's put that in a separate category for his solo career, Graceland and Paul Simon self-titled. They're the, his two most perfect albums. They have his best songs. Uh, it, if you only own two Paul Simon albums, those are the two you have to go with. And the songs, Julio Down by the Schoolyard is my one seed. Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes, Mother and Son Reunion, Obvious Child, Boy in the Bubble. All right, my uh, two albums, Paul Simon, self-titled, Graceland. I, I, I don't know if there's another great option. Um, Jeff might have one. We'll find out. But, but those two, yes, absolutely. Songs, Kodachrome, 100%, one of the finest slices of 70s pop. You should hear Kodachrome. Uh, I, I like Have a Good Time. That's going to be in my five here. Uh, Paranoia Blues from that uh, debut album. I love Train in the Distance. That's a fantastic song. And I only have one slot left. And uh, I, I, I will say the title track from Graceland. That is just an elegant, wonderful song uh, that, that, that uh, you certainly should hear. Jeff, over to you. All right. So for my two albums, I decided to adopt a rule that I sometimes do. It helps me smooth over difficulties with this part of the show. I'm going to choose two albums, and then my five songs will be songs that aren't on those albums. So my two albums will be Paul Simon, his debut, and it will be Graceland. These two albums are close to pretty much perfect. There are some flaws I can nitpick here and there, but they're cohesive holes. There's really nothing here that is less than top shelf. And 
So I'm going to choose five songs that come from the rest of his career. The first one I'll pick, Scott, you you were there too. Kodachrome from uh, from Ryman Simon is amazing. If I'm going to pick something from Still Crazy, it's going to be 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. I still think that it's a shame you can't find words that rhyme with Jeff. Like, you know, you bore her to death, Jeff. <laughs> like, we can do that. Maybe, Paul, you could have done something better. I don't know. All right. So then I will pick from Rhythm of the Saints, an album that otherwise, you know, it feels like a little bit too much him returning to the well uh, for a second drink. Uh, I'd say Can't Run But is really a magnificent song. It's a magnificent rhythm track. I'd say Beautiful from Surprise uh, is one of those things that genuinely surprised me. It's like here's late period Paul Simon just literally taking my breath away. But I, maybe the subject matter really grabbed me. You know, the idea of adopting a, you know, a child, uh, a disadvantaged child, and just loving him as your own. It's, it's a really powerful element. And for my fifth song, my last song, I'm going to go back in time and mention something we didn't talk about, which is the last song on Hearts and Bones. It's called The Late Great Johnny Ace. It's a great song. It's a song that's sort of about John Lennon's assassination, but it's about more than that. It's about sort of rock and roll deaths, and the way that we think of and we sort of canonize and enshrine these great legends of rock who died. He's talking about this guy, Johnny Ace, who was, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a great guitarist. I can't remember how he died. I think it might have been like, you know, like a weird, like Russian roulette way that he died. It was like he thought the gun wasn't loaded. He put it to his head and he pulled the trigger. It could be another rock star I'm thinking about. That doesn't matter. What matters is the way Paul Simon talks about this, where he says, like, I'm, you know, it was the year of the Beatles. It was the year of the Stones. Now it's in 1980. I'm listening to the news on the radio about John Lennon being killed on a cold December evening. You know, a stranger came up and asked me if I'd heard that John Lennon died. And the two of us went to this bar. We stayed close to We closed the place. And every song we played was a tribute for the late, great, Johnny Ace. That is a beautiful song, not only in its own terms, but about music itself, about the myth of rock. And uh, it's worthy of Paul Simon. It's worthy of, of some of the best of popular music in the last 50 years. And, uh, you know, it was fun to discover all of this stuff for the first time. I'm sure I'm one of the few in this audience who is doing so, but I, if there's anyone else out there, I hope you enjoyed it as well. On a cold I was walking through the Christmas time When a stranger came up and asked me If I had heard John Lennon die And the two of us went to this bar And we stayed to close the place And every song we played was for the late great Johnny the Political Beats look at the music and career of Paul Simon. I think our guest 
Rory Cooper. He's a partner at Purple Strategies, a corporate reputation and advocacy agency in Alexandria, Virginia. Former George W. Bush era Cantor aide, longtime Republican strategist. Find him on Twitter at Rory Cooper. Rory, thanks so much for joining us. This was fun. Thanks for letting me do it and listen to all this music for the last uh, few weeks. Uh, Jeff, I think uh, now we got to find a Simon and Garfunkel uh, person. This is like we're still searching for our Uncle Tupelo show after having only done Wilco in, uh, in or that episode. Or jo- our Joy Division episode, yeah, which yeah, will be yeah. literally 40 minutes long because there's two <laughs> albums and three singles. Find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. We're over on Patreon, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us. Help the show stay ad-free. We are edging very close. A lot of people joining in January, so thank you. Come on board. Patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Help us stay ad-free. Entry-level, mid-level, upper-level with all sorts of benefits. Check it out at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. And now the part of the show where we thank our Patreon supporters individually and specifically for their support. Thank you to all of the new subscribers in January. We've had a slew of them, including Kelly Corbett, Jim Allen, Founder Fox, B. James Slade, Daisuke Nike, Jesse Dula, Jeremy Mollison, Dorothy Wyke Hang, Bill Cunningham, Chris Chachulis, Adam Anderson, and Michael Patrick Tracy. Thank you and all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this show possible. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. Go right to nationalreview.com, click on the podcast tab for more episodes. Find us on Facebook, join the conversation on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.